now tuned in to the cold hard truth. Cayman's number one hard-hitting live podcast show, where we feature some straightforward conversations on political, social, and celebrity news, and all things happening in the Cayman Islands and around the world. This show was created to give the people a voice and a means of being involved and informed without any filters. Sometimes it gets crazy, but we always keep it real. We bring you the tea piping hot so grab your favorite beverage and join the conversation via whatsapp at 324-1612 email tips at caymanmarlroad.com now here's your host sandy hill broadcasting live from the beautiful cayman islands Man's best variety, old school Fridays. I'm Blake and Aaron. We're doing throwback Halloween songs all morning long as we head into Halloween weekend. Woo-hoo. Don't forget our Spook Fest is coming up on Saturday. Moms, dads, kids will be at Pedro St. James, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. tomorrow. Mm. It's absolutely free to come and enjoy safe trick or treating, enjoy some games, get the kids out in their costumes outdoors. And uh, of course, we're going to follow all protocols. And it should be a fun time. Again, it's absolutely free to come. And enjoy. All right, time is 7.27 right now. Big news. I have some important news for you. Interesting news. It's Blake and Aaron's Spilling the Tea with Sandy. K-Man's top news headlines of the day from CMR. Happy Friday, Sandy. Hey, Hey, happy Friday. 
How you doing? How's it going? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? We're great. great. Um, we were hoping that you could uh, provide us with the uh, the numbers from yesterday because uh, I didn't see anything. I know. And guess what? Neither did I. Oh, my gosh. We pulled out all the stops today. Oh, my Love gosh. It. Your Love filter it. this morning is very scary. Um, I know, Ooh. right? Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. I can do so, the whole show like that. <laughs> I think that's funny. I think you should. I know everybody in Radio Land is like, what's going on? What's so exciting? <laughs> Hold on. I'll take a picture of that. Hold on one second here. Um, I love it. Let me go full screen. Hold on. No, I want to get us in there. Oh, you want to get your. Okay. Oh, okay. You know what, yeah. like, there we go. <laughs> I'll screen grab it and send it to you as well. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, that new system not working so well, eh? Um, new reporting well, system. <laughs> I think that uh, let me let me tell you what I think is going on. They have not said, and I think that you know people are obviously very very anxious for the new numbers. But I think what's happening is um, now they're allowing the individual testing centers to report their own results. So there is an extra step, which I mean, it would have been good if they just came out and explained this to everyone. So there is that extra step that is now involved in notifying people. So for example, if you went to doctor's hospital, they're doing their own notification of um, you know, their clients directly, people who've been tested. And then they also still have to send that information to public health. And then public health is still having to collate it all. And you know, so there is that extra step with the testing centers. Um, Only if they're positive though, right? Or are they having to send through negatives as well? Well, I mean, they have to send the total number of how many people are tested in any event. So you still know how many out of that were negative, obviously. Um, so yeah, they're, they're supposed to be notifying people by email. Um, you know, so yeah, they're delayed today for, yeah, from yesterday for sure. And, uh, we're kind of waiting to, to see. I saw a, uh, the opposition leader put out a, a video, uh -huh. um, which I was actually, uh, to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised to, to hear it pleasantly surprised, I should say. Yes. Um, because the uh, Roy McTaggart said that that he and his his opposition had met with the current government over plans and were able to ask questions, mm -hmm. and that they were very appreciative of that opportunity, and and, and hoped that uh, there would be more communication between the two. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, this government invited them to sit down, and I think, ironically, from what I've heard. Um, you know, that's always been the case, <clears throat> even previously, but they kind of came out with all guns blazing. So they didn't actually give them an opportunity to be um, cordial and invite them for a sit down when the timing was, I mean, you know, you, you invite them when you have something meaningful to say to them, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, um, yeah, they just need to relax and, you know, they'll, they'll be treated fairly. I mean, you know, at one point they were all, um, you know, pals politically. Um, the current premier and the previous premier. So I'm sure there's um, some common ground there, I guess, you know, yeah. um, and everyone should have the common ground of wanting to do the right thing for the country in any event. That's yeah. it. Regardless exactly. of, you know, what your political affiliation may or may not be. Totally. I can't stop staring at <laughs> your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's pretty crazy, right? That's yeah. awesome. Um, uh, yeah. That's so... I went, all, I went all out this morning, went all out this morning. It took me hours of hard work. Uh, I know, all that makeup. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> getting your room black and white back there. I don't so know. Great. I mean, I, I don't oh my gosh. Special lights and the works. Pull it out. Um, so, my uh, Halloween cabinet. So I heard there, there was no, there's not going to be a press conference today. Was there supposed to be one? Is it no. expecting some more information? Nope. Soon? Nope. Okay. I don't know. Like people seem to, um, I'm not sure why, but people seem to expect a press briefing every single week. And then the irony of it is um, when they, you know, oh, like, why isn't there a press briefing? When one is actually held, what I find is happening a lot of times they're like, well, there wasn't much to say. What was the point? It was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, you know, I'm like, like you uh, press you're yeah. the one who keeps saying that you wanted a press briefing. So, yeah. you I, know, I, if I, it's I, something minor, do they need to report every single thing to you? It's like, come on. I think what people, what I'm hearing is that people want to know when phase five is going to happen. Yeah. And I think at this stage, it's too early to say. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I think we need phase. to get to the next phase first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get to phase four but first. <laughs> I have two things. First thing I have is that I found out that my mom and her husband are going to come in December to January. So I'm super excited about that. So I emailed Travel Time saying, okay, now what do I do? How do I get their vaccine right. verified through you guys? Wait for further instructions is what I call them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I get it. So I'm glad. And I got an email pretty quickly from them. So thank yes. you. Um, now, the second thing is I saw online that all the uh, like lateral flow tests that were at the pharmacies are all out already. Like everyone bought oh. them all up. You just bought no, a few. I bought three. The, um, I bought footage. three, so I'm not a hoarder. And what, was, I, what was the supply when you saw them? a good amount yeah, but i was like right. i'm only gonna buy three because i don't want to be that person but i also don't want to be that person that's stuck with none when everyone else buys them all yeah yeah i didn't i didn't get my hands and, on any you know um i mean you saw the lines yesterday at doctor's hospital for testing I and did. i thought the, the thought that occurred to me is um this is fantastic that people are out there getting testing attested but what i would love to see is that kind of a line for vaccinations Let's mm-hmm. just let's just bring home the vaccinations, folks. Well, We're almost yeah. there. Um, let's just get it done, you know, because that's what's going to really protect you. Testing is fine because now you're going to know your status. Yeah. Um, but you know, like one young lady yesterday, late last night, she saw one of her posts about Everglow Bar having some positives, and she messaged and she's like, "Do you have any idea if they're bartenders?" And I said, "No, I just knew that it was you know staff there." Come to find out, her roommates work there. That's why she was questioning it. And guess what? They're positive. And she mm-hmm. didn't know. She found out on CMR that, oh, maybe right. I should ask her. Yeah. So, you know, now she's like got a quarantine with them. I would be so annoyed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I know a lot people, of people in quarantine have, right now. A lot of people have roommates and, you know, that's yeah. it's you can't control what they do, but. No, you got to tell. Yeah. You got to be like, it's, hey, by the way. It, it, whatever they do could affect you and Absolutely. your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And then some people are locking out with the roommate situation. So there's another young lady who, um, you know, she's got a roommate and um, she's actually testing positive. She's a school teacher and whatever. And so her other, her roommate um, is also, they're both school teachers, but at different institutions. So luckily for her, her, the last two weeks, her roommate has been staying with her boyfriend. So now that she's tested positive, she's like, oh, good. You can continue to stay with him, (laughs) quarantine with him. And, um, you know, the the other roommate kind of locked out in terms of... um, she doesn't yeah. have to worry about it. The question wow. remains, are, are these positives uh, vaccinated or unvaccinated? Are you getting any word on 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 anybody you're talking to if they, they are or not? 
Are they you breaking know, that's they one of the, that's again, I think one of the um, numbers that we would love to get from um, the public health department to be able to just tell us that because mm -hmm. we do not know. Um, you know, I, I would be guessing just as much as anybody else really yeah. at this stage. So, you know, so, people in quarantine because I, why? Uh, just in contact, like hanging out with friends. Uh, well, and are, are they positive or negative? Well, I think they're waiting for their test to okay. come back. But the people that were hanging out with yeah. over the weekend came back positive. So now they're at home. So were they? Do you know if they were vaccinated or not? Yeah, they're back. Well, but then you have kids that can't be vaccinated. So right. it's kind of one of those things. But yeah, they were vaccinated. I don't know about the people who have. That's what I mean. Yeah, I don't know about that. Okay. I just heard about that. But I know other people that are in quarantine from the same situation uh -huh. of being next to a positive mm -hmm. case. But now they're stuck at home for 10 days. Is it a party, boat party? What was it? No, I think it was just like a kid's play date or something. Okay. You know, that's the thing. Like that, I think wow. that's a lot of the big thing is the kids. Well, can I tell you something? This is going to be, you know, this is going to be a little bit of breaking news and we're waiting some, on some additional details, but I heard there was a location that was actually, it has turned out to be a super spreader location and you wouldn't, you wouldn't guess where it is. Maybe not. Mm. Supermarket. <laughs> no. Or what are you talking about? Super uh, location? Maybe like, like, a, like a party. Maybe like a kid's place? Nope. No? Mm -mm. Lay it on us, Sandy. It was a bar. Okay. Uh, Cotton Club, which we talked about this weekend, and we spoke about several times this week. Oh, that a lot yeah. of people. They have infected, that location has infected a substantial number of individuals beyond oh, what people mean. would think. So I'm trying to get some numbers, but I hear it's very, very high. Um... So very, very interesting because, you know, they can trace down to the very like nanoparticle um, what clusters are connected when it comes to COVID outbreaks. So uh, there was a rumor afoot. We did an article late last night uh, to put that rumor to bed, hopefully, that the country was going to go into lockdown mode. Mm -hmm. And um, someone in one of these prospect groups created this rumor and it started to quickly go viral yesterday. A lot of people were messaging me about it. And um, what I thought was interesting is that that isn't going to happen. So that was completely false. But the government may have to look at putting further restrictions in place because these bars largely are just not doing what they need to do. What's the phrase? And you can only, uh, society can only walk as fast as its slowest walker or whatever it goes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. What was, the deal, what was the deal with the water authority closing? Uh, to to clean deep, do a deep clean. Well, that means that they had a positive case or two. Yeah, they were doing it uh, yeah. not not only in Grand Cayman but also Cayman Brac. Yeah. So. Yeah. They never said I mean, why, the Brac they... is now uh, the Brac and Little Cayman. Obviously, are now in the mix. Mm -hmm. So um, no one is uh, going to be spared in terms of that. So yeah, anytime you see the notices go up, <laughs> we're closing for twenty four hours to deep clean. Right. You can assume. There's a reason for that. Any other breaking news? Um, I think that's pretty much it. It was kind of a slowish news day yesterday. Um, everybody, you know, waiting patiently on the results. Um, yeah. A couple that the police have warned about a couple um, scams that people, consumers should be aware of. So there's a bank statement. Um, they're asking people to check their bank statements for fraudulent activities after they've become aware of something. So mm. the fi financial crime unit is asking people to just pay really close attention to their credit and debit um, card statements. 
That's why I have no money. <laughs> That's not why. We don't <laughs> pay anything. I was going to say, is remember, that remember that one time when um, a bit of money showed up for my account? I was like, whoa, that's not mine. It was like $200,000 or something. What? Um, yeah. Really? No, this was um, a couple months ago. Yeah, it was, it was like, whoa. What'd you do? Let me report that right away. Oh, man. <laughs> Let me play some music to go along with your uh, filter, by the way. Oh, yes. Why would you? Uh, I would report like 199000 <laughs> Yeah. What are you for doing? Being uh, honest. So what's what's happening at uh, what kind of candy are you giving out for trick or treaters? Um, I don't know yet. I'm trying not to keep candy in my house, but I, I normally do the standard like Snickers yeah. and whatever I like. I want to give out. What's you know, Gigi gonna be for Halloween? Which one? Sorry. Which What's Gigi gonna be for Halloween? Oh, she's frozen. She's already gone oh, to okay. school in her costume today. Uh, yes. My so kids went too. She's a frozen princess. She was so excited this morning to put on her costume and. Put on her little tiara and her shoes. Oh, um, so yeah, cool. they're gonna have a little party at school. That's fun. Did right. Miles dress up today? Uh, he yes, a little bit. Okay, yeah, I know. My kids just went astronaut, and then the other one was a little dinosaur. His costume is a little bit much to be in all day, just yeah. with the fireman's outfit. Uh, so we sent him in in a like sort of a ghost shirt, uh, t-shirt. And I just, sent he looked uh, adorable. I sent my oldest in a full astronaut outfit. <laughs> <laughs> he knows how to oh take my it. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his, some fires yeah. later on. And his uniform underneath. So that's going to be a little warm. All right. Old school Friday of uh, throwback Halloween songs. You got one for us? What okay. So I know someone I said think, Monster Mash on there, but we I already played that. Yeah. Um, I, I came up with, I think, Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. Ooh, one of my favorites. Yes. Good song. Yeah. There we go. Pretty quick on the fly. Yeah. There we go. Nice. Kind of a slow start. <laughs> no, it gets up there. Yeah. There you go. All right, so there you go. The base. Have a fantastic weekend, guys. I know. When we talk to you on Monday, it'll be Christmas time. Oh, my gosh. It'll just be everything Christmas now, November 1st. It's so nice. Hey, Christmas music from the 1st, though, oh. are we? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going to be no, November 1st, we start Christmas music? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. I about just quit. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. All right, guys. Have a fantastic right, bye, everybody. Have a See you later. wonderful Happy Halloween. Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Thank yep. you. All right, guys. That is Blake and Aaron on uh Kiss 106.1, and it's me, Sandy, going all out for you guys today on Halloween. Good morning to Irvelyn. Good morning, Marshall. Good morning, Melita. Alice is here for it. Uh, Mitzi, good morning. Hello, Larry in New York. Oh, my gosh. Can I pluck out my little red eye there? Um, good morning um, to Carmely. Larry says, play the Monsters theme song. Oh, that would have been a good one. Um, yes, it is Friday, and it's like Halloween Friday. So this is Halloween Celebration Part 1. Um, good morning to Stan. How are you? Uh, watching us from Guyana. Thank you so much for tuning in. Lizette Malita's here. She's like in the look I can see. Uh, James is also into it. Good morning, James and Felicia. Olivia, Diamond, Princess, Joy. Carol says there's no lateral test anywhere. OMG. Wow, that's crazy. Good morning, Celine. Aw, she says you're awesome. Good morning. Thank you. 
Wee Wee's here for it. Ingrid, good morning. Hello, Daisy. Buenos dias. Um, wow, they better hope and get someone island. Good morning, Miss Sue. Jonathan is here. This is really scary. <laughs> ah, Sabrina. Um, Aliano, yes. Um, tea time. Bars, party boats, Halloween parties, all super spreaders. Yeah, honey child, I'm not going anywhere for Halloween in terms of party. Uh, rainy morning in Detroit. Um, here's Johan. What's wrong with your eyes? Don't they look beautiful? Good morning, Alba. Como estas? Uh, Vernita's here for it. Jake, good morning. Um, says, you know, people are going to create memes with that face of you. Oh, yes, I love it. Tell them to go right ahead, shall. Um, Sue is like, what on earth? Uh, Jamie says, I'm here uh, for that look. Thank you. Uh, Marshall says, loving the Halloween look. Claudette, Claudel is watching from Jamaica and Blissful Powell is also here. Buenos dias, everyone. So listen, on Fridays, um, what we are now going to do for at least the foreseeable future is we're gonna do a little bit of a replay situation, right? So I know some of you do not get to tune in on um, Tuesday evenings and Friday evenings to watch those shows. Those shows are fantastic. You've been missing an amazing time. So what we've decided between Kevin and I is that we're gonna pull one episode a week and replay it during the Friday segment. But this week, it was impossible to pick one because honestly, it was just really, really hard. They were both fantastic shows. So what we have done is we've combined the two shows. Kevin has used his creative, creative genius skills, combined the two shows and uh, do a little intro and outro. And that's what I'm gonna play for you this morning. I should warn you that they both went into overtime. So it's about a three hour show is what we're gonna do today. But it is chock full of information, folks. I really want you to stay tuned for it. Um, but first, let's show some love and appreciation to our sponsors. First up is the um, Cayman Island Census 2021. Please make sure that you participate in the census because it's really, really important. Census 2021. Census. Come on, get ready. Census. Starting 10th of October 2021. Census. West Bay, you're ready. Census. East, then we come in. Everyone will be counted. Census 2021. Census. But in town, are you ready? Census. Georgetown, we coming. Your info will be secret. Not I get ready. Census. Rockers will be counted. Census. Little Cayman, we coming. Census. People get ready. Census 2021. Census. Todos se cuentan. Census. Latinos serán contados. Filipinos más anda. 2021 census. Papa, are you ready? Census. Mama will be counted. Census. Children and toddlers. Census. 2021 census. Information is secret. Census. 2021 census. Starting October 10th. Census. 2021 census. Everyone counts. All right, folks, so make sure that your information is counted. And the only way you can do that is to participate. So a big shout out also to Reliable Supplies. Uh, everybody is running for everything from Purell sanitizers, folks, to masks, gloves, cleaning supplies, disinfectants. Well, guess what? 
Um, I got to tell you that Reliable has got you covered for all of those things and so much more. All right, good folks. Let us get into the video segment. Any more um, comments before we get going? Good morning, Darlene. Yes, thank you so much. We kind of realized that, um, you know, it's such amazing information, folks. I mean, oh my God, the guy last night was awesome. I loved uh, what he shared. I loved his um, demeanor, his mannerisms. Everything about him was fantastic. And, um, you know, he's just cool, calm and collected and really, really knows his stuff. Um, Marva says, yes, Johan, it's a certain time of year that that just happens to her. Yes. Uh, good morning again to Miss Sue. So let's get it going again. Big shout out to Kevin Watler. Um, hail up Kevin on social media. Tell him hello for doing such a fantastic job. Um, by the way, there is an accident on the roadway. So please be careful. I think it's in the Red Bay area. Uh, someone just sent, let me just see here. Someone just sent a notification about the accident and someone just sent me a notice saying jackass of the week contender a guy driving on the soon-to-be third lean um in red bay but the lean doesn't exist yet so i don't know what this guy is doing uh he's creating his own lean it's like come on folks this is what causes accidents you need to still follow the road rules big shout out to nra um for trying to get the road done but you driving on the road before it's finished is probably not a good idea. So let's show you what this joker looks like. There he is, folks. He or she, I don't know. Um, there it is. Driving on a road that's not even done yet, trying to beat traffic. Ay, ay, ay. What you going to do with these people? My, oh, my, oh, my. Uh, Ms. Vernita says, I can't understand some humans are afraid of ghosts, but celebrate them. Now I think dressing your kids like a little princess and those fake fairies and, and good, clean fun is fun. Yes. Well, Ling Ling, good morning. Um, you know how it is, folks. It's uh, everybody's got a thing, you know, I'm, I'm a princess the rest of the year. So why not be a little bit? I'm just joking. Um, Ling Ling, good morning. Um, I'm hoping for some good news for you today. Fingers crossed. All right, so everybody be safe, and here we are. Stay tuned. Some experts tonight to share how the Cayman Islands medical system is prepared for COVID. We have a very, very excellent panel tonight um, that's made up with the Minister of Health and Wellness, the Honorable Sabrina Turner, uh, Chief Medical Officer, Dr. John Lee, uh, Health Services Authority, Dr. Uh, Deputy Chief Executive Officer, Ronnie Dunn, Health Services Authority, Deputy Medical Director, Dr. Courtney Cummings, and Hazard Management Cayman Islands Director, Danielle Coleman. Really appreciate you all taking time out of your extremely busy schedules to join us for this very important discussion. So wanted Thanks to very much for having us. Perfect. Pleasure. Wanted the Minister of Health to just uh, have some opening remarks. Uh, Ms. Turner, would you like to, to at least share uh, some opening um, remarks? 
Sure, Kevin, and thank you. Good evening to all of those persons who are streaming and to the team um, here. And we're happy that you are able to put together a forum of this nature. And I'm happy to make sure that I carved out the time to, to show my support um, as Minister of Health and Wellness, not only to HSA, to the other government agencies such as HMCI, our own CMO, Dr. Lee, in showing that we're all of this together. We understand the apprehension, the nervousness, the, the anxiety that's being felt throughout our community and having a forum such as yours that bring experts into one room to try and, you know, make keep the connection, keep the lines of communication open, um, try to dispel as much myths as possible and 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 trust, trust these experts. Uh, us as experts, well, for me being the elected person with that immediate um, responsibility as Minister of Health and Wellness, one can only understand the pressure that is now placed on our ministry, but it is not alone. We are definitely here as a government to provide all support and resources, and that has shown uh, what we're willing to give to HSA and to our public health uh, to assure the public that we are willing to work together collaboratively and making sure we address all of the issues and concerns. We know that there are persons out there um, who have expressed some concerns with the amount of calls and welfare checks. I'm quite sure throughout this show that Dr. Lee and some of the, um, the health services uh, persons on this 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 um, show this evening will also give some explanations. Now, whether or not we've gotten it right in the past couple of days, Kevin, we haven't, but who has? But what it has shown is that we have a dedicated team who are willing to come together to put the resources where they where we see that they're needing any little gaps. We're willing to put that to fill them as quickly as we can. And I want to just thank persons, thank the persons out there who have found themselves into um, you know isolation or quarantining for complying. And we're asking them to continue to to you know give us the patience. We are doing everything that we can to make sure that we um, put the necessary resources and personnel within the respective places so that we can answer them and respond to them in a timely manner. And I thank all, everyone for their cooperation thus far. And you said something very important because, you know, I'm here in Florida and certainly um, I happen to live in the county where the very first case in the state of Florida was announced. I was the one that was responsible to set up the press conference for the governor for the big announcement. And at that time, we knew absolutely nothing, really, other than little bits of information that was coming out there that changed sometimes more than one time a day. And we, But now we do know so much more about how to protect each other and also how to treat. And so wanted to make sure that we have that conversation. Exactly, you know, obviously, we have a lot of experts in the Cayman Islands. We got Dr. Lee who's uh, you know, done a fantastic job. We got Danielle Coleman. We have a, a whole lot of people that I'm not even going to try to keep naming them because the list will go on forever that is working so hard in the background to protect everyone. Um, but again, as you said, not everything is done right. So how do we learn from some of those mistakes and what do we need to sometimes take a look at? And so we want to make sure that uh, we, we have this conversation. And I do want to go on to Dr. Lee um, you know, we did find out that we do have a couple of people, which is not unexpected, that are now on oxygen. What more can you share about that? Um, nothing really further at a clinical level. Um, I normally get a daily roundup 
in the morning. Um, they were not requiring more than just supplemental oxygen. So we have not had anybody that's required breathing support since the 8th of September <clears throat> in terms of a ventilator or a breathing tube. So that's great news. Um, but I think that is, as we've seen with the numbers climbing, we will end up with people who are seriously unwell and we will probably end up with, um, unfortunately, some deaths. Um, and as we heard in the video from Tampa, and as we have had examples from not only around our region, but from every single town and everything, wherever there is a hospital, it's the people who are not vaccinated that end up the most seriously unwell, unwell and die almost invariably. Um, and that's a, <clears throat> a huge wake up call. It should be for everyone. Um, and it's, it's a stunning, stunning statistic. Absolutely. Now, oxygen. We talked about oxygen, and I do know not just uh, you know, in where I'm at in Florida, but around the world, there was a medical oxygen shortage. What is HSA doing to make sure that they have adequate supply? So, as the need likely will arise, as there's more community spread, likely more hospitalizations, what what is being done to ensure we have enough supply to be able to provide to patients? Should there be a need to have a whole lot of oxygen going out and and then there will be a, a shortage of what's available and in, in, um, what's typically there. Thank you for that question, Kevin. Uh, we do have a reliable source of oxygen supply locally. In addition to the direct supply, we maintain adequate oxygen supplies on hand to carry us for at least 10 days under normal circumstances, notwithstanding the fact that our supply has been reliable. Um, for all the years it has served us, we've also invested in the procurement of our own oxygen generating capacity, and we intend to install a plant here at the main hospital over the upcoming weeks in the event that our demand heightens beyond what our local supply can provide. We have a backup source of, um, of supply. So we're, we're fairly confident in our ability to manage the situation from an oxygen availability perspective. Got it. Now, um, I guess if there's a contingency plan in place, let's say, the machine decides not to work because we know things break. And so what is the backup plan for that plan? So the, the first line is the local supply, which has reliably served us for many years. Second line is the oxygen stored in, in cylinders here on the compound, which can take us for a week and a half. And the third line then we will have is our own ability to generate oxygen from the plant we're procuring. Perfect. And then um, have you been stocking up on things like monoclonal antibody treatment, which, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of success um, throughout the world. I know um, there are some uh, here. In, I know America probably bought up most of this, so you don't have the ones where you can just inject inside your arm um, and your stomach. Um, so you have to do it by IV um, because, you know, countries of larger pockets are able to buy up the supplies. But um, what is um, what type of monoclonal monoclonal antibody uh, therapy treatments do, are you guys um ordering if you guys are ordering and and uh, what's the supply like for treating patients with that so we have a, a range of therapy available to us but i'm going to ask my deputy medical director to speak specifically in relation to the therapies available and the, the quantities on hand currently and those that are in uh, procurement at the moment um okay. yeah thank you and good night to everyone um Yes, we do have monoclonal antibodies on order. And the one that we have on order 
is the Regeneron, the one that everybody knows about. We've got 15 kits on order and we are waiting um, uh, arrival um, um, from overseas. Um, Regeneron is really a big name, Casirivimab plus Indivimab, that's a combination. We do have that um, on order and we should be having that on island very soon. Appreciate you. And, and what about, um, this goes into the more the financial part of it that some people might not recognize. And this goes into some of the discussions that I've had with uh, some of my friends back home, unfortunately, that have chosen not to get vaccinated. Um, they're saying, they're talking about it's very expensive with getting the vaccine. My argument is, I'm not sure if you really, really understand the cost of purchasing or getting treated for COVID, especially if you get monoclonal antibody treatment, it's not a very cheap thing. What can we say about the cost and the expense that is for the HSA to, to start stockpiling some of this type of treatment? Right. What I can comment on that, um, Kevin, is that we are we're blessed to have the full commitment and support of the central government in how we are managing the pandemic. We are given the latitude based on the clinical expertise to procure what we consider will be necessary by, birth, by, by way of therapy for the effective management of uh, persons presenting with COVID-19. And that money is reimbursed to us um, from the central government. So whilst the, it is the public purse and we continue to be prudent in how we manage that, we have not suffered from a lack of resources uh, to be able to procure what we consider necessary to, to manage our local situation. Got it. And I, I want to bring you in, um, Danielle, since we haven't had any questions, that's for you. Um, I, I assume you guys at the uh, Hazard Management Cayman Islands would be um, assisting with any type of surge that might occur. You want to kind of talk, walk us through what some of the plans are. Should we fill our hospital and end up having to implement a surge plan? Thank you, Kevin. And again, thank you to all your listeners this, uh, this evening. Um, again, I think uh, just look, looking back last year, um, obviously the National Emergency Operations Centre was activated for about 104 days. Now, obviously, the medical team is the lead agency in any pandemic. Um, so, we, yeah, we, again, we were all functioning on all cylinders last year, this time last year for about 104 days. Um, whilst we're not activated right now as the National Emergency Operations Centre, Hazard Management and, and various other people from the actual NEAC um, do assist with that. So whatever the needs are, be it personnel, be it um, equipment, so forth, we can very much help with that. Um, one of the things we've been helping with um, more recently, again, is the, the isolation humanitarian support. So whilst, of course, the flu hotline has been buzzing off the hook with clinical humanitarian needs and so forth, we've tried to take some of that um, burden off them in regards to the, the grocery shopping and those kind of um, yeah humanitarian needs. So that's what we're there for. Again, I think it's very scalable right now. Again, hazard management is sort of operating with a few NEAC members like communications and, and uh, resource support. But if by chance, you know, this does get to a point that we really need more assistance, we can scale that up very, very quickly. And of course, everyone's sort of um, ready to go if, if it does happen, because that's the nature of what we do, be it a pandemic or be it any other emergency. Um, it is very much scalable. So we just have to sort of take it as it comes. We're ready to go. Um, the centre can be moving, you know, even if it wasn't a pandemic, it was something else, we can uh, set up very, very quickly and move within 
the space of an hour or two. So, yeah, just there, social capacity helping any way we can. Kevin, if I might just add something to that, because some of your listeners won't be aware, but <clears throat> the civil service has been having um, been on a war footing for really some weeks now, um, meeting every day at 10 o'clock for at least an hour to discuss where we are, what we're doing, what's what's coming up, what's happened, what can we learn, and adjusting our response um, on, on a minute by minute level. And um, it is uh, it is it is um, consuming um, all of the civil services energies to make sure they do as much as they need to do in order to keep the people sa as safe as they can and to be as prepared as we can for what may be on the way. I think just to add that again, Simo, I, I mean, it's so true. At the end of the day, um, that, that shared situational understanding and that everyone plays a part here, be it education, be it medical, be it um, disaster response, um, everyone does have a role. So those programme board meetings every every day at 10 o'clock have been really helpful, making sure that everyone's pulling their weight and doing what they need to do for their specific subject. So they are really, really important. We did have a, a question from one of the viewers um, from Jane McCarthy. Where is the field hospital? So where would that, uh, I guess, open up? Should we have to expand? Ronnie, if you want to take this first, now, So the, the field hospital is part of our contingency plan um, after the existing capacity. Well, sorry, go, go ahead, Daniel. I'll let, I'll let you take this one then. No, no, I was passing to you first, but I, I guess at the end of the day, it's, it's a, a, a joint uh, project between health and hazard management and public works, actually, as well. There's going back to different stakeholders. You know, to, to set up a field hospital is quite a, a big task and it does take several weeks to do so. Um, obviously, the health is the main lead, um, but there's a lot of logistics. I mean, last year we found some very interesting creative ways. You know, we mentioned the supply chain earlier on, Kevin, and supply chain, be it for oxygen or other things, in a global pandemic is, is obviously quite, you know, quite sometimes quite difficult to get items. A lot of items last year, like toilet roll and other things like that became an issue. So supply chain to a small island like ourselves, we do have to be quite creative and we do have to make sure that we've got the kit. And if we don't have the, the kit, we can't get it. How do we improvise and make things? So I think there were some really good creative solutions last year. Um, but I think I'll send back to you, Ronnie, just again, the current process where we're at with the emergency field hospital um, to make sure that we are ready for any eventuality. Thanks, Danny. Absolutely. We, we recognize the need for the, the field hospital as a contingency to the existing capacity that we have within our main healthcare facilities. We are discussing that um, in terms of the appropriate point to initiate setting that up. A number of the items that were procured last year when we set up the field hospital are currently in storage and some of the facility that we did put in place in terms of backup generator and um, other electrical preparations still exists. The, the building we utilized last also is used to ministry to the community and to serve other purposes within the community as well. Um, fortunately for us, when we set it up last year, we didn't have a need to activate it. At the moment, we're working with those partners within the private sector and stakeholders to try to recommission the facility and have it available in the need, uh, in the event that the core facilities uh, reach capacity and there's a need for um, additional capacity. So we're hoping to be able to have that in place within the next, uh, I would say, month and a half or so. Kevin, if I may just add also, 
that it's not just the HSA that we're able to rely on for resources. Um, we are a um, we are a country um, which has three hospitals and other resources beyond that, and all of these different agencies have all committed to 100% to supporting the initiatives to look after people if should they become sick with COVID. So, in fact, if you look at the intensive care unit beds um, compared to the 100,000 population, we have currently 37. And if we max out, if we use every bed just for COVID patients, we can actually reach 59 intensive care beds per 100,000 population. That's compared to the United States as 29 and the United Kingdom six per 100,000. We have, have at max 59. We never want to be using those. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, but we do have an awful lot of resource. If you look at the number of physicians that we have, the Cayman Islands is 321 compared to the United States is 277 and the United Kingdom's 230, 100,000 population. And it's a similar story for nursing. So we are exceedingly well provided for, but um, on a per capita basis. But as we said, we wish to make sure that we don't max things out. That's never a situation we want to be in. We want to flow, slow the flow of people to the hospitals in order that we can um, continue to provide everyday services. And the way we could slow that hospitalization rate is by... Right. Can, I, can I quickly add if I'm... Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Go ahead, doctor. And, and Dr. Cummins, when you talk, would you be able to just come a little bit more into the camera so we could see you so you're not hiding in the corner? <laughs> Dr. Cummings, are you able to hear us or? Right, I'm hearing you now, right. Thank you so okay. much. Right, I think Dr. Lee touched on a very important point about the availability of resources. It's a combination with um, Health City and Doctors Hospital. We do work closely in tandem with this, with this other group of um, physicians to pool resources and effort in terms of managing these patients. And yes, as patients come, um, we will, resources will come from all of the hospitals to manage the patients. I just want to quickly add, in addition to all that was said, what would be the trigger to opening the field hospital? And one of the important things we should mention here, at HSA, we have um, two ICU beds that are airborne infectious disease type beds, meaning they allow the virus to be taken away from the environment into the air after being um, sterilized, so to speak, and it's safe for the staff, etc. We've got several other beds such as that. We've got one in the medical, one in the surgical, and the staff, um, Mr. Don and his staff, they've created a number of other negative pressure rooms at HSA. So we're in good shape in terms of about 13 such beds. But what we have said is once we've got two patients in critical care and uh, and we've utilized two in a medical ward, um, we're going to open the RCU. And once there are more patients, if there are probably another two in RCU, we're going to trigger opening the field hospital. I know the field hospital takes some time to um, to get set up, but we have to have some way to say, now we need to start doing this. Having said that, I know there's plans on the way 
to put things in place so once it's it's it, it we need to go we'll be able to to get on with it as quickly as possible absolutely and talking about um you know the negative airflow looms that sort of stuff as well too i wanted to, i did have a question on that are there plans to have um like a covid wing or an area designated for only covid patients in um the cayman islands hospital yeah so right now we have um what dr cummins referred to as the rce which is a respiratory care unit that has a eight bed capacity and um, the, the areas which are where we house our high dependency um, patients such as critical care unit and others do have the capacity for negative pressure environments which we utilize to limit the potential for disease spread when um, COVID positive patients are within those areas. The dedicated wing for infectious disease is part of our facility plans going forward. At this point, um, the time it will take to get that building put up Will not be will not feature as part of the management of this pandemic, but we do recognize in the the, the, the circumstance that COVID nineteen wasn't the first; it won't be the last, and so we have that as part of our plan going forward to create an infectious disease wing here at the Cayman Islands Hospital. Now, in terms of your staffing at the HSA, what's that looking like? I know worldwide there's been a, a shortage in nursing staff i know you said that you know per capita when dr lee went gave us some data um but just because someone is also um you know have a credentials in nursing and be ready for it does not necessarily mean that they are practicing um or available necessarily to, to be utilized um what are the plans to bring on staff quickly if necessary so currently within the cayman islands and and as my colleagues on, on the call have pointed out that it is an entire health system approach. So we have 321 registered uh, practicing physicians, 515 nurses across the Cayman Islands. At the HSA itself, we have 234 nurses and a little over 100 physicians available, in addition to 49 healthcare aides. So we have good capacity existing presently to manage uh, relative to our population size, as Dr. Lee was giving those statistics in relation to other um, advanced countries. But notwithstanding, it's, a, it's an active recruitment daily and weekly to bring on additional nurses as a contingency and also to give our guys a break. It's been uh, a very challenging year. We've had a number of people who haven't been able to take vacation all year and burnout is real. So whilst we, we are comfortable, uh, we are 1,055 uh, persons strong as an organization, and uh, close to two-thirds of that are in clinical areas. We, we have a plan in relation to even after the, the currently practicing and registered nursing cater is exhausted or, or reached its capacity, we do have a number of individuals and staff who were trained, experienced nurses who may have been promoted into administrative roles at this time that can also provide backfill support. So continuously recruiting, but feeling very good about where we are right now. So I do have a question, even though you might have a lot of staff, how many of them are, might not necessarily need a number, but um, what's being done to ensure that a lot of that staff is also um, getting familiarized with treating a respiratory type of illness? 
So continuing professional education is part of what we do. Um, we have infection uh, prevention control coordinators, we have health and safety manager, and we have a clinical guidance document that's been put out by our clinical task force and rolled out to the various areas and clinical disciplines. So our staff since 2020 would be aware of the, the presence of COVID and that it eventually would get here and we would need to manage that situation when it does. And training through experience and through um, theoretical uh, uh, courses have been an ongoing process. So we feel very confident that our staff is trained there of a high caliber and um, they are managing the situation and we'll, we'll continue to be able to manage the situation going forward. Uh, can I just add to what Mr. Don has said? Um, sure, Dr. Thomas. The, the task, the, right, thank you. The clinical task force, which um, involves clinical personnel others, um, physicians, nurses, pharmacists at the HSA, and that task force coordinates with other senior personnel, clinical people from other hospitals, um, doctor's hospital and health city. The clinical task force, ever so often, we review the literature from the major, like, for example, Infectious Disease Society of America, CDC, on a weekly, maybe sometimes daily basis to see what is updated in terms of managing treatment, the types of um, um, uh, strains we've seen of the virus, etc. And we do give, in fact, as recent as about two months ago, we had CMEs for the entire staff two or three months ago. So it's an ongoing, as Mr. Dunn said, um, exercise whereby we inform ourselves and our staff as to how we manage this pandemic. There's a question from one of our viewers, Rachel. She's asking, are there a set of criteria for um, insisting further control measures to slow the impact of hospitals such as curfews, work from home, remote school mandates, closure, indoor leisure, entertainment, gyms etc and if so what are they and uh, when do we need to take tougher measures to protect hospitals and health workers i don't know if that's for the minister or who wants to take that one i might give it a start and then so <clears throat> the government has actually um asked the civil service to produce um, a plan of readiness, which we've been is a very active document and is being updated on a daily basis to not only um, document where we are and how ready we are now, where the gaps are that we need to attend to, um, but also in the same document to look at what the triggers are for escalating into if we're moving into um, higher levels of community transmission, such that we'd need to instigate tougher measures to control transmission of COVID-19. Really, the most important indicator that we need to watch is the number of admissions to hospital um, and whether the health services are coping with the levels of, of, of demand on the health services. And currently, as you're aware, the demand is very low <clears throat> so we are not overly concerned. We have to look to examples of other countries where they have high vaccination rates rather than countries with, with low or patchy vaccination rates because they're the best exemplars of where we are likely to be 
in a few weeks or months time. And in those countries, you will have seen that although infection rates rise very high, the numbers of admissions to hospital are relatively constrained and people have been able to cope. Alongside that, um, the Cayman Islands instituted non-pharmaceutical interventions immediately. There was community transmission. They did not hesitate for a moment, which means we're very grateful to the public for continuing to assist with distancing, mask wearing, um, hand hygiene, and also very importantly, looking after the elderly and the clinically vulnerable in order to protect them because they are most at risk of suffering. We are running out our booster program as we speak. Um, we are getting close to 20% having had the booster and we need to push that up as fast as we can, obviously. But there are a number of different measures that we've instituted. Um, the high vaccination rates, as we've mentioned, the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the booster program, which will all mitigate the um, extent of the demand on healthcare services. But in that same breath, we can never do enough for vaccination. The numbers of people who are coming forward sick are obviously worrying. And at the moment, they only have minor coughs and snuffles. But we don't want it to get worse than that. But there are an awful lot of young people in that group. A lot of dates of birth that I watch are people that are in their 20s and 30s. And that is also the group that are least vaccinated in this country. And I would really ask them to consider their decisions very carefully mm -hmm. because I don't want to see any of them in hospital suffering. And I really do not want to see anybody um, uh, um, um, uh, do badly as a result of COVID-19 because we know that vaccination can protect you from bad outcomes. Yes, I must segue in on that. And we are noticing uh, from the day of election and we have resumed our positions this government is has been, you know, pushing the vaccine and the uptake thereof. And like Dr. Lee uh, just stated, we can see with those persons who have become sick, but low numbers of those persons not needing respiratory care. And we don't want to see that. But our plea will continue to be to encourage persons to get vaccinated. That is that will be the cry of this government because we see based on the data, based on the stats globally, not only locally, but globally, the the, the positive effects that it will have on persons um, once the vaccine is taken. And we definitely will continue to encourage the uptake in that. And because stats don't lie, we just need to make sure that should and we keep our fingers crossed and we have faith in God that, you know, with the high number of vaccines that we have had on this island, that those numbers will actually continue to rise and we will see the protection that that is given our people. And I really want to touch on, on some vaccine questions, um, especially to tackle and to really target message those who are vaccine hesitants. Um, what is really being done to really reach that demographic? I've seen a lot of speeches, I've seen a lot of call outs, but I, I'm not hearing about of a lot of going more or less directly to those who are unvaccinated and targeted missions to really try to encourage vaccines. 
Um, so what what maybe is that a hazard management function with like the, you know you guys got the cert teams? Is is there something more that can be done to have more one-on-one -on -one communication and access to really talk to those who are vaccine hesitant? Because a lot of them um, that I've spoken to are, are completely seeing and listening to a lot of disinformation, not a lies that is out there, but actually having that one-on-one -on -one communication. Um, I'll, I'll stop there and see who if Danielle wants to take that up. I guess I'll start with it. I mean, I think it's really interesting here. Obviously, in Cayman, we haven't Beginning the 10th of October, residents across the Cayman Islands will be invited to participate in the 2021 census. What is the census? Simply put, the census is a headcount of every person living in the Cayman Islands. The population count and data are protected and authorized by the Statistics Act. The information is confidential and cannot be shared with any law enforcement agencies. Your response helps guide business, social, and economic planning for the future of our islands. The 2021 Census will inform decisions on how millions of dollars are allocated for roads, schools, hospitals and healthcare clinics, fire, emergency response services, and other programs. Census enumerators will visit your household, ask a few questions like how many people live in your house, including their age and sex. Every person counts, no matter who you are or where you live. So have your say in the 2021 census. Had what the rest of the world has currently had, been experiencing for the last year and a half. We've been incredibly lucky. And I think it's often quite difficult to appreciate how lucky we've been until you start seeing the ICU beds becoming overwhelmed. So, you know, we've been living in this incredible bubble and whilst we've had those, you know, living regular lives, we haven't really been exposed to a lot of what other countries have been exposed to. And I think until that reality becomes the reality here in Cayman, we're still going to have vaccination hesitancy. I mean, we have one on one conversations with, with a number of people um, on a regular basis who are anti-vaxxers. Uh, obviously, a personal choice is a personal choice. Everyone's body, you know, you do have to you have that freedom of choice over here, of course. But at the same time, again, as, as the minister says, the stats don't lie. It's very, very clear that what we're seeing around the world, people who are not vaccinated are really suffering much more. And I think that, you know, we can say it to with the boot in the face. I mean, you hear us on the press conferences, you hear us in, you know, all our social media posts, and anytime we're doing an interview is, you know, please, please consider, you know, making informed decisions, speaking to your GP, speaking to people who you trust about the vaccination. Um, and to keep that dialogue going. I think, unfortunately, it, it does get to a point it becomes quite divisive. And at times, you know, you can be as open and have these conversations as much as you possibly can or, and, and are willing to discuss it. But what, I, what I'm also observing is that, you know, some people are just shut off and that they, they, they have a very fixed way about saying what they think. And I don't think there's always going to be a way of persuading those people otherwise. So it has to be a personal choice. But again, look at the stats, speak to people who you are, informed and know what's happening around the rest of the world and really you know consider that decision because it's only a matter of time until again we see the sad side effects here here in Cayman that the rest of the world have probably seen much earlier than there. Well, Danny just to segue on to that I mean look at some of the countries uh, in our even in the region where persons are having a difficult time having or getting access to the vaccine 
We cannot say that here in the Cayman Islands. From day one, we have had easy access, free of charge, um, that we have rolled out and, and given people the, the ability to, to get vaccinated. Recently, we the government has even approved for duty-free for even these lateral flow tests. We've waived the duty on those, and we, the government, uh, giving all of these lateral flow testings to the schools and, and making sure that we can get them out there. So it's not that we're not giving, um, making sure that you, can, you can't get access to anything in comparison to some other countries that don't have this luxury. Um, we see the AstraZeneca is also now available for those persons who want um, the choice of AstraZeneca. But from day one, the Pfizer has always been accessible and free of charge here in the Cayman Islands. So there's so much a country can do and your government can do, but respectfully, we have to respect the rights of those persons who choose not to. But Dr. Lee and the, the, the medical side of things, their consequences, I can understand those persons for religious reasons or for medical reasons and, and you know, getting deep, not going too deep into it because we don't know, is it the chicken or the egg? That This is where the medical um, persons and, and data collection is key. Um, but the bottom line and the big takeaway from this is that the Cayman Islands and the government has given everything um, very easy access to now the boosters, to having free access to the vaccines, and now the rollout of lateral flow. Uh, we've waived the duty so even commercial persons can bring these lateral flow tests in free of no duty at all. And then your government is providing them free of charge. So we have done pretty much everything within our power to, to assist and, and no one can't say that they can't get it is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Now, I do have a question as we talk about increasing vaccine numbers, but we're also entering, or we are now in flu season. And so I did have someone that um, did message me and want me to, to ask everyone on the panel tonight, um, why aren't the flu, or why isn't the flu shot available at the same time you might want to come and get the booster? And then on that same question about boosters, um, it doesn't seem like there are very long lines, at least, to get um, any type of uh, vaccine. So why haven't like teachers or the eligibility open up a little further um, by now if the vaccines are available? Um, as far as the flu vaccine is concerned, we follow the timetable of PAHO. That's where we get the majority of our vaccines from. <clears throat> and it's expected here in November. Um, we don't have that much control over the arrival date of that. Um, the um, vaccination, certainly when I went on Friday, um, had a big long queue and I had a lot of reports of big long queues, which is off-putting for some people. Um, we've opened it up quite quickly, firstly just over 70, then over 60s and over 50s in a very short space of time, two weeks, so that we can really allow the biggest access we know that overwhelmingly the people that are going to do worst are in those age groups, the 50 and over. Um, as time goes along, when we have good penetration in those age groups, we may well be allowed to extend it to younger age groups than that as well. Obviously, if you're clinically extremely vulnerable, you have access to it at any time, and also so do healthcare workers. We are following the, um, we are providing the vaccines under an agreement with the um, from the um, UK government, from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and um, 
So that does play a part in our decisions to an extent, although um, provided the medical um, medicines, healthcare and regulatory authority of the United Kingdom has approved something, we can vary locally should we wish. Um, but we do want to make sure that all of those over 50 can have access to it because the vaccines remain globally relatively limited and we understand that we really do have to share the vaccines to other countries to make sure that at a global level everyone gets vaccinated and access. I think your question Kevin was um, whether or not public health for the vaccine clinics open or extend their hours? Well extend the hours or at least you know if we have the vaccine also maybe have if the health service authority and the medical teams aren't able to handle any greater demand how about also letting private providers also provide um, assistance in vaccines so you don't have just one or two locations available in a day, but also be able to go to a doctor's office or somewhere else to also be able to, to inoculate individuals. HSR, Dr. Lee, because that would have been something that would have been agreed before our time. But I know the discussions did come up whether or not we would consider um, allowing private um, physicians to also give these vaccines. You would, would you, either of you like to weigh in on that? I mean, that's certainly a possibility. We've been discussing it. Um, under the current um, agreement with the United Kingdom, we would need to have a waiver because we've agreed that they would be given out by public health. Okay. Um, and we have we although we as 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 you quite rightly say kevin sometimes there are no cues sometimes there are cues um i i think that most people when they want to get access to the vaccine they can get access and we're running out not only do we provide district clinics as well and often the nurses sit there doing nothing um but we also um provide um services to people's homes too so if you're clinically very vulnerable and can't leave the home with providing services to there and also of course in the institutional homes. So we are getting penetration to a number of different areas and I suspect providing um, a, a very good level of service and, and perhaps better than, than many other countries are able to offer. And um, this question, because this is actually just something that happened today um, where the FDA um, just approved Pfizer for five to 11 year olds. Um, in your experience, I think this is more of a Dr. Lee question. How quickly does that typically happen um, where you get approvals from the UK and on over? And I wanna, before you answer Dr. Lee, make everyone aware if they're not aware that um, the vaccines that would be available for five to 11 year old, it is not the same um, dosage. It's actually a different Pfizer vaccine. Well, it's the same Pfizer vaccine, but it's a lower dosage and the cap color is different. That's how you could tell the difference between the two. And so I know the Cayman Islands would not have that in their possession at this time, but in, in terms of how quick when FDA in America might approve something, how long before the UK might decide, okay, um, we're going to go with this and also allow it for five to 11 year olds. I don't think it's really the case of just because the USA has done it, other countries would necessarily follow suit. Um, the United Kingdom has often actually been the first person to do some of these things rather than the other way around. Um, as far as the MHRA is concerned, they've actually often um, been relatively quick, provided that the manufacturer has approached them and asked them for the approval that is required. So it could well be that Pfizer have gone, and I think Moderna and um, Janssen, for example, have gone to the FDA and asked them specifically for their approval. But somebody would need to approach somebody like the MHRA or the EU and so on, all these different bodies for the approval. 
And the MHR have been relatively quick. What's a bit slower is the government's, what they call the Joint Committee on Immunization and Vaccination, is to, to decide which groups to do. But once the MHRA have approved it, we could do it too. So that's what we would be looking for. So let's uh, take a look at some more of the viewer comments that are coming in. Um, we've got one on the screen that says, can a person with a, ver a very high health condition get um, get vac uh, vaccine, what? vaccinate high blood pressure, kidneys, lungs, and heart conditions? Uh, question for Dr. Lee. Um, absolutely. People with, with um, medical conditions are absolutely the category of people that we really want to get vaccinated you are most at risk from getting sick from COVID. Therefore, we would like you to get the protection from the vaccination. And we got from Denny Warren Jr. This is the ivermectin question. Are pharmacies free to dispense ivermectin for those who wish to use it? Um, I don't really, um, I think that ivermectin is a licensed drug and therefore any any healthcare practitioner is free to prescribe any licensed drug um, whether they are doing that they need to make the decision that it's um, in the interest of their patient but um, there's there's no particular limitation on any licensed drug that i know of um, and not on ivermectin and then from sean uh, we are seeing 80 to 90 new infections per day over the weekend period. Um, it would be, uh, would it be possible for Dr. Lee to provide some stats or data um, by the end of this week indicating whether these new infections are associated with the vaccinated or non-vaccinated young children who cannot be vaccinated be placed into a different category from those eligible adults? Um, if I take the second part first, young children who cannot be vaccinated are in a different category from those eligible adults. With We are, have different plans for how to manage them in schools and in the community. One of the really big desires of this government is to keep education going, to keep the schools going. We know that in many ways the schools are one of the engines of our society. And if, and if kids are not being educated and not growing up and being fulfilled, at the same time as also um, if the parents are needing to provide home care, then then a lot of things stop. So we really want to keep the schools open in a safe and as healthy way as we can, which is why we are rolling out the lateral flow tests to schools um, to, to, to with that aim in mind. Um, the question has now disappeared from the screen, so I can't remember the rest of it. Apologies. Oh, you went back to it. There you go. Um, as far as the stats are concerned, I would need to ask public health to provide these figures. I don't have all of them to hand, I'm afraid. Um, they are not as easy to determine as you think they might be. When you get a test result coming back from the laboratory, it is not marked whether the person is vaccinated or not vaccinated. Just as when your blood test comes back, let's say you had a full blood count or something, it's not marked whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. It actually needs somebody to do another check. So it's not as easy and you can understand that when a lot of results come through, it becomes more and more tricky to do so. Um, so I would need to ask public health for this, but it might not be as immediate as you would hope for. Gotcha. And then, uh, Nona was uh, talking about, you know, a lot of uh, individuals who are 50 years and old, they stepped up to the plate. Thank you very much for doing your part to, to get vaccinated. And uh, obviously uh, Nona is quite eager that the age group uh, drops down. 
um, to another number. Uh, we can go on to the next comments on Facebook and says, what's the plan for the ER? How are you separating possible COVID patients, COVID positive patients from the average person seeking emergency treatment? Are they are there pressurized isolation rooms in the ER? I know we touched on it, but you want to probably just uh, summarize that again. Uh, what? So thank you, Kevin. Um, within our emergency room, we have 17 care areas, including two isolation rooms. Sorry, I'm not sure if there's a delay. But within our accident and emergency area, we have 17 care areas, including two isolation rooms. However, what we advise is patients who are presenting with adverse respiratory conditions um, flu-like symptoms to go to our flu clinic as opposed to presenting our accident and emergency area. Accident and emergency, even under normal normal circumstances, sees anywhere than 25 uh, persons daily. It's a, a throughput area. Um, you present, and, and what we are experiencing, that people are, are presenting with other conditions, um, stomach concerns, for instance. But because our policy is that we test everyone before they're admitted to the hospital, we're then finding out that somebody's showing up for a stomach discomfort um, that needs to go on to admission and tests before going on to admission are tested positive for, for COVID. So it's not, it, it, it does present some challenge when somebody comes and sits within your um, waiting area because there's no immediate marking on the individual that identifies them as being COVID positive. What we're trying to do is to um, implement social distancing, ensure that our sanitization protocols are at the top and advising patients who are symptomatic for flu-like symptoms to be managed in our flu clinic, which is more um, geared towards their management and not within the ER. There are some construction going on in the ER now with reduced capacity. So we're asking for the, the public's um, understanding over the next couple of days. We expect to have all care areas back in operation by the end of this week and to only visit in the event of true emergencies to be managed in A&E. Visitation policies, any changes to them with the increase of community spread? Yes, so we are um, restricting the visitation policy. It's one visitor per patient per day. Um, there are also age restrictions. Persons entering our facility uh, undergo a temperature screening, um, except for those people coming in through accident and emergency. And we're trying to, to manage the numbers that are circulating within our facility as an infection prevention and control measure. And we have some viewers in, in the, uh, from YouTube and from Facebook that are asking again about monoclonal antibody treatment. Um, I know you said that they're on order. Do we have an estimated time when they will arrive as well as, in addition to that type of treatment, what other treatment options are out there for those who test positive with COVID and end up in the hospital? I'm going to let my colleague Tav take that one. Um, go ahead. All right, Dr. Cummins. Right, thank you. So we the, the monoclonal antibody is supposed to be arriving in about two to three weeks, I'm told, by my pharmacist, the chief pharmacist. They're in order and should be here in two to three weeks. With regards to the other treatment modalities, we have remdesivir, which is used in persons who have um, severe disease, moderate to severe disease. We have dexamethasone also. Um, so those are the two main ones. But we have also have other medication. Um, there's one called tuluzumab, 
and Bartisanib, which is on order, and Tocilizumab, which we have on island right now. So we do have a fair amount of treatment for patients who may present with severe disease or even critical disease, of which I mentioned dexamethasone, um, uh, um, remdesivir, tocilizumab. Those are some of the drugs we have. And the others, um, complex names, I don't want to call them all, but they're on, on, on order also. Got it. And um, we do have a comment from Andrew who's saying, please share projections for the COVID wave um, we are in based on how Delta behave in other countries. And I will tell you, we do have a show that we did with a data expert where you can actually see that. Um, and we're gonna be bringing him back on once we get more data. Um, we've, we've put in the request so we could have some more data so we could be able to do some new projections. So we'll have another show in the very near future on that. So if you want to go back to that show, if you go on Facebook, there is an actual show that is for a series for COVID spotlight series that has every single show that we've done. I think we're at a dozen now. So um, please, please watch that as well. Um, do we have any insight into the current cases such as transmission venues or age groups? Um, we certainly know that schools are a good place to transmit COVID. Um, actually, but we're seeing that in a number of different countries where um, particularly as schools have gone back after the summer and in the northern hemisphere when it gets colder, children are a very good source of transmission of COVID even though they don't necessarily suffer themselves. And that's exactly what we saw here in Cayman, that, um, um, that they, the infection started, appeared to start there and then spread into the adult population. Originally, it was almost entirely exclusively in children, and now it's moved into the younger adult population. But it does tend to stick in age groups because certain age groups tend to stick to each other. Obviously, you know, you tend to socialize, 20-year-olds tend to socialize with 20-year-olds and so on. So that is what we're seeing, and it's, it's, it's not unsurprising. Okay, and I'm going to take the last comment from our um, comments, and then we're going to go into closing comments. But did you have something to add, Dr. Cummins, before we... Yes, um, if I could add um, that, we, yeah, in the Cayman Islands, we tend to see um, a lot of the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds being the more... Um, uh, we, we tend to see more cases in, in that age group at this point in time. And the reason for that are, one, persons who are older may have been vaccinated, so there's a greater amount of vaccination in the 50-year-old and 60 because they were the ones at risk. The younger ones felt they weren't at risk and they were less vaccinated, first thing. The second point is, as Dr. Lee mentioned, there's more socializing. The younger ones, the 20-year-old and so on, they tend to, their lifestyle, going to the beach and hanging out together and so on. So I think it's a combination of things that has caused that age group to be the one that we see more infections in at this point in time on the Cayman Islands. Thank you. And then for the minister, will we have a lockdown or some form of work from home order to slow the current transmission? Or if we even go up even higher, maybe when would that potentially be considered? Well, as the government working in collaboration with other um, experts and modeling exercises, we don't plan at this very minute to um, have any anything right now to say, oh, this is what we're doing right now because of the heightened numbers of positives that we've seen community transmitted for a lockdown. Now, there, 
in the coming days in much order we will we would be educating more because we've we've drawn this thing of introduction of the high vaccination rate the introduction of the lateral flow testing and we're we're sensitizing our community with living with covid as dr lee and hsa the specialist um said what would be the triggers to to actually bring a lockdown hinges greatly on the amount of persons that we see showing up positive, the strain on our healthcare infrastructure, and definitely those persons requiring respiratory care or death. We have to, we, we, I think more and more, and we're gonna be doing more education and more PR in this regard of sensitizing of what life is like being normal and living with COVID. And this is why you will hear us push and push and push for vaccinations, for persons who can who are eligible to get vac vaccinated to go ahead and do it. The, the lateral flows are out there uh, based on the guidance of public health and the experts. We are allowing those households who may have found themselves living in a home with a positive person who is not vaccinated, but if they're members within that household, that is fully vaccinated, we introduce the lateral flow testing and you do those tests once a day for 10 days so that you're able to go back out to work. This is the beginning steps of getting accustomed to living with COVID. Now, as the days go by and we constantly monitor what's happening within our community and based on the guidance of Dr. Lee, public health experts and other professionals, we will tweak that as we go along. But in the immediate form, we ask for organizations and employers to institute what they feel. We're leaving it up. We, government isn't a government that wants to do anything to say mandate, mandate. We're all in this together and we expect organizations and employers to adjust as well as helping us, the government, live with, help us live with, with COVID and managing what life is like with COVID in our community. And Minister Turner, I'm not sure if you saw, but I did a, a series. I spoke with Caymanians living and abroad in a COVID-filled world um, show with, I interviewed nearly a dozen Caymanians from all over America, Canada, in the UK, and explaining, hey, we could live with this thing. This is what we do. This is what I've done to protect myself, protect my family. And so if you haven't had a moment to watch that, these are, you know, young and older Caymanians who are sharing their experience. I'm going to be reaching out to some more and we're going to do some more to add to that. Um, but yes, it's absolutely able to be done. Um, I've been doing it. A lot of my uh, other fellow Caymanians around the world have been doing it. And um, we just got to make sure that we protect ourselves by getting fully vaccinated and uh, just being safe, practicing safety things. I want to respect all of your time. Um, I did say about an hour. We have a few more comments that came in. Would you be able to just go ahead and take them before we move into closing comments or do you have to leave? I'm open. What are the rest, everybody else? Yeah, happy to stay until they're finished. Happy Perfect. to stay. I really appreciate you guys agreeing for that. So um, we got from um, Cayman Life TV. Are there any concerns that people who might be exposed to COVID would avoid getting tested because they don't have symptoms and don't want to be isolated or quarantined? Being exposed and confirming that they're actually positive, we're, we're finding a lot of persons, um, you know that COVID is a communicable disease and it's one that legally you have to report it to public health. 
So should people actually take that stance, they're actually committing an offense. And we're hoping and we're, we're trusting the honorary system. And I'm quite sure you've heard Dr. Lee use that term before, that if people do these lateral flow tests and they see where they are positive or come in contact with a positive, that they would do the right thing. And I've seen a few um, persons who have come in contact with positive have, have done the, the the responsible thing and sent out a message on their Instagram pages saying, I've been chest tested positive and I'm letting everybody know who's been in my contact for the first 24 hours, last 24 hours to go and get tested. This is where we as a community is taking personal responsibility to help us manage this disease. So anyone who has that mindset and not doing the right thing is committing an offense. And wanted to go back to one of the earlier comments that uh, came up from Winston Hunter. Um, will there be a protocol in place for calls to 911 where infection is suspected? That would be a question for HSA. What's the question? Will, will there be a protocol in place for calls to 911 where infection is suspected? Um, thank you, Kevin. We are working, uh, we have worked on the protocols for our EMS response team. To, to try to ensure that they're safe in responding to, to those types of calls. The prevailing view uh, across our facility is one of guilty until proven innocent. So we have to treat every patient that we encounter as a positive patient until it is proved that they're not a positive patient. And our EMS team being on the front line, responding to 911 calls, understand that more than potentially anybody else within the organization. So just this afternoon, I was having a conversation with our medical director as conditions change, as circumstances um, evolve, we are reviewing all of our existing protocols, amending them as necessary, implementing stronger controls, because our healthcare system is a critical part of our national infrastructure and we have to protect, protect our frontline guys. So short answer, yes, we are having protocols in place to respond to 911 calls. And just a, a follow-up question on that, I know we don't have a whole lot of ambulances to serve the island, um, and say we have a lot of respiratory calls because people are just, um, I tested positive, positive and they just start to freak out and it might be because they really need to go or it might be that they just, they're calling because they're, they're very, very concerned. Whatever the reason is, it might tie up some ambulances. Um, what's the plan to, to increase capacity in that regard? So presently we have five ambulances. Um, three are normally deployed at any given time and we have two on reserve. Um, that's on Grand Cayman. We have two in Cayman Brack and one in Little Cayman. Um, it is not the ambulance crew's job, nor do they determine whether or not the reason why you call is serious enough for them to come. They are going to respond unless there's an ability to manage the circumstance based on the, the call to some other type of arrangement. And they they work they work their hearts out. They respond. I know sometimes there's a queue based on the coverage areas that we have. We are procuring additional ambulances. Those will be here within a few months. Right now, the team we have and the, the ambulances we have are what we respond with. And um, they're, they're coming for you if you call them. Thank you for your answer. From Carol Adams, um, but repeated lockdowns just kick the can down the road and destroy mental health. Um, that was, I guess, follow up to one of the earlier questions. Um, we go down to um, Nikita. Living with COVID means you have to eat healthy and can't buy health, but you can't buy healthy food in Cayman. 
So that, I guess, might lead to a little different discussion on, you know, staying cost healthy, cost of living and other other discussions on there. Um, and I think that that covered um, the questions that we had that came in. I really appreciate us going. Are you guys willing to go into overtime? And um, I'll move into closing comments. And Danielle, you've been the quietest, I guess. <laughs> nice, very peaceful. I'm with an expert panel here. I'm very happy to hear what they have to say. Uh, it's uh, it's really good. I guess just from closing, I mean, like any any other situation, um, you know, we every time hurricane season comes about, we always say be prepared for, you know, by chance you get three to five days of a storm passing, you need to make sure you're ready. Um, with this kind of community transmission, there is quite a big chance that one of these days you will get that call, you're either contact or that you do test positive. And we're really, really strongly encouraging the people, to, the public to, you know, make sure you are ready for that. Make sure you have the support plan in place with your family members. You can help with that sort of um, supermarket shop or whatever else, your needs, your pharmaceuticals, have a plan in place as a family. Um, because again, you know, two weeks without any plan, staying at home is going to be very, very difficult for you. Um, we do, we, as I said, we have set up this isolation hotline to assist people who need it. Now, again, there is an assessment that people have to go through to get that assistance. So it's not, uh, you know, obviously free for all food, but it's very much uh, the government is here to help you if you need those, those food supplies. Um, and we're very happy to, to do that. So I will leave, Kevin, I will leave that, those numbers with you. Um, but another thing, I, mean, I thought that video you showed tonight was fantastic, the Tampa video. And I do strongly encourage people to, you, know, you to share that more and we can share it with our, with our social media pages because it's really important people see what the reality is out there that we haven't been exposed to so far. Thank you yeah, very much, Kevin. Thank you, Danielle. And we've been actually sharing them um, on CMR. Um, in fact, Tampa General, um, uh, they've, they've done a whole series that I think is number five. They, they have different topics where they're, they're going to their staff sharing those videos. Um, so you can see what's going on in their hospitals. Again, um, with my role here, I work with all of the hospitals in my region, um, but, but Tampa General's really taking a lead in, in making sure people are aware of, of the facts, of what they're going through. And um, again, uh, more than happy to, to give them to anyone there who wants to amplify them. We could absolutely use them um, to, again, get that message out there. So... Uh, go on to um, closing comments from uh, H our HSA partners. Uh, thank you, Kevin. And in just closing, I, I would just like to express sincere gratitude to, to our team. Um, one out of every 70 people uh, working, living in the Caymanas work at the HSA. We're going through this journey as a community. Um, we are your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters. And as many people have expressed previously on calls, there isn't a script that you're going through. I know sometimes the public try to access services and it might not be as efficient as one would like, but I'd just like to assure the public that the, the men and women working here are doing their very best. We, we are trying to deliver services to the standards that you deserve and we will continue to do so. We don't know what the next month or two will bring, but you can be assured that the HSA is going to be working very hard to manage the circumstances that present as we go through this pandemic. And uh, thank you for having us on the show. Dr. Cummings. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I just want to endorse what Mr. Um, Rani just said. And I would say to the public that, uh, and the public has done well, I would say to the public, if you remember last year, we had no treatment at all. Now we have the vaccine. And not only that, we've got treatment in terms of drugs remdesivir and, and tocilizumab. So I'm, I'm saying that 
things are going to get better with regards to managers managing this pandemic so hope hope is is there it's going to get better and i say to people um continue to protect yourselves wear your mask do the best for yourselves and we will get through this thank you very much dr lee thanks kevin and thanks very much for the opportunity to speak it's really great to reach different audiences so it's always very welcome um I, I absolutely echo what, what other people have said, um, and the future is looking a lot better. Um, we are in such a different place, and I know it's a worrying time here in Cayman. You can reduce that worry by getting vaccinated because it'll protect you, it really will, um, but it will get better. There are a lot of very good drugs out there, tablets that are going to work against COVID should you get it, and so on and so forth. So I, um, I um, thank everybody for their attention and really keep going with the non-pharmaceutical interventions, distancing, masks and hygiene, because they will protect you um, uh, to a good degree. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And I uh, did have another question that came in right before, and this was going to be for you, um, Minister Turner. And so you could embed it into your closing comments. Um, but the question is, how is the Cayman Islands government mitigating um, for and preparing to deal with what appears to be um, the potential uncontrollable community spread, um, given the statement made on social media and other platforms by people who are experiencing symptoms but refusing to get tested for fear of being put into isolation? Okay, that that is one of the things... Um that actually hampers, and it's a personal decision in all honesty that people have to make. We have made public and we have appealed to persons to get vaccinated. You choose not to, and you think you may have come in contact with somebody who's positive and you're home feeling sick, but you refuse to either call the flu hotline, which is a perfect way to seg into that, segue into that. That toll free number is 1-800-534-8600. Should you have these symptoms, or if you get to a point where you're having difficulty breathing, you call 911. Now, why should one have to make that, take that gamble in your life? The government is not, or we don't want to. Our, our whole narrative and our approach at this juncture understanding that we are in a high community spread at this time we don't want to be that government where we have to mandate everything we aim to to make sure that we got our vaccination rates up to 80 percent people were saying it was impossible we are almost there and we are seeing the positive effects that that is given we can only continue in that drive to encourage persons to get vaccinated we have seen the mental hardships that isolation and lockdown has actually played. We've seen the damages that just trying to maintain a state of this bubble, which unfortunately has been pierced. And as Dr. Lee said today, the genie's out of the bottle. Can't put it back in. Uh, what it has done to businesses and people's lives. We have to come to that place where we are sensitizing, educating our people, but making sure our most vulnerable is protected. And the only way we can do that is to make sure that our people get vaccinated and continue in that vein.
We are not here to hold a stick over people's head and 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 go into that deep legislation. And I'm 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 hoping that in a couple in a few days when we roll out exactly what are the triggers and uh, working alongside programs board so that we can have a more dialogue with industry stakeholders, which we've already started doing that, that people will understand and trust 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 us. Trust your medical provider. Trust your public health. And I, I, I must take this, this, this opportunity to honestly state that as your elected officials, we have gotten a number of calls. We are getting beaten up that the flu line, the flu hotline is not working. We have put in the isolation support hotline that Miss Danny is heading up. And that number for persons who need groceries or just assistance with getting uh, those letters for your employers. And please correct me, Danny, if I, I'm, I'm going off, but that, that welfare support line for groceries and non-clinical stuff is 1-800-534-3530 um, or 946. 3530 and it's running at the bottom of the screen. These are all of the things that we're trying to do in order to make life as easy as possible while assisting you to adhere to the isolation and quarantining protocols. And that's all we can do really at this point in time. We have listened to the people, we hear your concerns, we understand your frustrations. Right now with what's going on in our sister islands, that they're seeing some community spreads over there. Over in the BRAC, that has our most aged population. That's our history. So we are doing everything in our power to make sure that we put all the necessary resources and personnel in place, but we as an elected government, public health staff, HSA staff, Danny and her crew, we can only do so much and no more. Community participation and cooperation is key and we have to do this together. So in the coming days, I wanna thank you for allowing us to have this, this, this forum. And you can see we are dedicated to making sure, and this government at the forefront is making sure our people will always be at the forefront and we are making sure that all protocols are in place to keep persons as safe as possible. And I hope that that is reflected in the cautious approach we have taken with the reopening of our borders. And it's not that we're not aware of the high numbers of community positives that are out there. We are listening and we're definitely trusting the guidance of the experts that are behind us, hence the panel that you have on your show tonight. Really appreciate you, Minister Turner. Dr. Lee, um, Danny Coleman, also our partners from the HSA, um, Dr. Cummings, and as well as Ronnie Dunn. You guys have been amazing um, to give us all of this information that you all did. Um, we had quite a bit of people that were watching, and of course, we always have a lot more that end up watching after the facts um, because they're unable to do so um, because sometimes the time doesn't work with their schedules. But again, thank you all for taking the time to come on tonight. We'll certainly have more discussions as we go along um, and, and we'll go from there. I do encourage everyone to watch the previous shows that we've done. Um, we'll be starting to air them on Cayman Mall Road in the future as well. Um, so on Fridays, I believe we'll, we'll start to air a lot of them if you were not able to watch them. But again, they still live on Facebook and YouTube at all times. Coming up next week, on Thursday, oh sorry, coming up on Thursday, October 28th, um, we're going to be uh, looking 
into what does the data tell us about COVID. I know we've had some of those discussions before, but Dr. Jason Salami um, from the University of South Florida, is he's a data scientist, will kind of look at some of the what the data sh is telling us, and we're gonna, we're gonna have some discussions with him as well. And uh, I mean, uh, the shows that we previously did, role of an epidemiologist and contact tracer, frontline healthcare workers, they highlighted their experiences, um, COVID-19 vaccines, cons, pros, and we also talked to those who are actually involved in clinical research. Um, we had a discussion about COVID-19 and children from a pediatrician who's also an infectious disease doctor. Um, the history and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines is another show that we did. Um, we had different doctors sharing their opinions on addressing and managing COVID-19. Um, we had that came, um, them came on. Uh, we also had predicting Cayman's future outbreak impact. That's the show um, the, where we did some predictions of what it could be expected in the Cayman Islands, and we're waiting for some more data to do some more accurate predictions. Um, we also did a show dedicated for those who might ha have heart issues, like myself, the heart in COVID-19, the importance of getting vaccinated if you have any type of cardiac issues. And again, we checked in on the last show with private providers, how they're preparing. And on tonight's show, we found out how HSA is, is preparing and how they're preparing the Cayman Islands medical system. So we, we've done a lot of shows. We're still going to keep on doing these shows with, on other topics that are coming up. So look out for the new topics once they, they come out every Tuesday and Thursday night at 7 o'clock. We're going to be doing more and more of these things. Again, tune in tomorrow morning on Sandra's show. Um, we're going to be um, having a lot of exciting topics coming on there. And for right now, I'm going to say good night, everyone in the Cayman Islands. Thank you for watching the CMR COVID Spotlight. Good night. You're watching the CMR COVID Spotlight. I'm your host, Kevin Watler. Sandra is in the background. She'll be keeping an eye on comments. I'm going to ask you all to please share this um, with your friends on YouTube and on, on Facebook, however you're watching it, as well as WhatsApp your friends and uh, let them know about the show is live now tonight. And if anyone has any questions, um, we would really want you to just put it in the comments and you can also join the show and ask your questions directly um, to our guest this evening. And so our guest, speaking of him, is Dr. Jason Salimi. Dr. Salimi, welcome to the CMR COVID Spotlight. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for having me. So want you to please tell everyone a little bit about yourself, a little bit time to brag about yourself. And some <laughs> I don't know if I've got too much to brag about. I think the thing I'm most proud of is uh, I think I'm a great father to a three-year-old. I think that's my most profound accomplishment. Um, I am a native of Tampa, Florida. That's my home. That's where I lived for all but five years of my life. And uh, I was happy to return back to the University of South Florida, where I am a triple graduate. I, I have an undergraduate degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. I have a master's degree in public health, and then I have a PhD in epidemiology, as well as graduate certificates in both biostatistics and applied biostatistics, which is just short of saying that uh, I'm usually pretty good in interacting with data and summarizing data uh, depending on whatever audience I might be speaking with, whether it's other scientists or just people from the community. And so hopefully we'll put that to the test today. Um, I, I work at the University of South Florida College of Public Health. I am an associate professor of epidemiology. My primary area of study is 
pediatric and perinatal epidemiology. So I'm very used to dealing with mothers and babies. And my area of specific expertise is in birth defects. So when COVID-19 first started to rear its ugly head, my first gut reaction was to think about how is this going to impact pregnant women and their children. And thankfully, relative to older age groups, we've learned that children are at least less impacted uh, than older age groups, but certainly are impacted nonetheless. And if Delta has taught us nothing in Florida, it's that children can get infected and can get severely ill. Um, but I think I really transitioned from just focusing on pregnant women and children to trying to really help people get access to reliable information on COVID-19. So early on in the pandemic, I developed my own COVID-19 dashboard, which was very centric to Florida at the beginning. I was trying to compile all of the information that they were making available and make it more interactive for people. When people would come to my dashboard, they'd be able to say, well, in my county, in Hillsborough County, among people who are 16 years of age and younger, what do the trends look like there? So I tried to make it more accessible to just every person in the community. And over time, I've, I've shifted what that dashboard looks like. Uh, if your listeners know anything about Florida, there is a lot of controversy over the restriction and the data that they were making publicly available from the Department of Health, but they were making a lot of data available to the federal government. And so right now, if people were to come to my dashboard, they would see a wealth of information on Florida, but also on the rest of the United States in terms of cases, hospitalizations, deaths, variants, basically uh, just about everything you'd want to know, you know, basic epidemiology of COVID-19. So um, I'm super excited. I've now done, I think, over 400 media interviews. I do town hall talks uh, for some of the largest employers in Florida, trying to, again, not really impose or make people do anything. Uh, people should be able to make their own decisions, but I try and provide them with reliable information about COVID-19 and about the vaccine because I believe in my heart of hearts, you know, I've, I've had these discussions with my closest friends and family, people who I love dearly, and nothing is zero risk, you know, so it's about weighing the benefits versus the risks. And I feel like if people have access to accurate information, the choice is pretty easy. The benefits of vaccination far outweigh any risks. Absolutely. And one of the things, at least from 2020, you've had over 150 peer-reviewed um, papers. So I don't know if it's more than that now, but at least in 2020, you know, you, you've done a lot of, lot of research and had peer-reviewed peer papers. Yeah, throughout my career, again, this is not certainly not on COVID-19. I do have a few publications on COVID-19, uh, but, but throughout my career, yeah, now I have over 170 peer-reviewed papers. A lot of it has to do with epidemiology of mothers, babies, of public health surveillance systems like our surveillance system for COVID-19. So, um, you know, as I usually tell people when I talk to them, I'm pretty much an idiot <laughs> about a lot of things. And that's most people, right? Most people don't know a lot about a lot of different topics. But in this particular area, in epidemiology in general, and certainly when we're discussing COVID-19 and the vaccines, uh, this is an area in which I have some pretty significant expertise. Absolutely. And one of the things, just going to paint you the picture for the Cayman Islands, which is primarily the audience that we're going to be um, targeting tonight, mm -hmm. is the Cayman Islands has been more or less in a bubble for the majority of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Community spreads now just recently really been identified and 
it's now you see that sharp rise in cases, just like we saw in the state of Florida right after the 4th of July holiday. Right. Um, the government is making moves now to open its borders a little further in the very near future by the end of November. And of course, that's concerning some folks. They're, they do have a very high vaccination rate. Um, almost 80%, at least one dose of, of the COVID vaccine. And they primarily had Pfizer. Um, there's just a few bits of AstraZeneca, no Johnson, Johnson, really, unless they went elsewhere to get that um, vaccine. So most of the people in the Cayman Islands really have been um, vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. So very great penetration, but not enough. They, they definitely want to push that up to, you know, at least 90 or more percent. So we have, have a much better um, coverage there. But either way, uh, there's still um, some local physicians as well as some other people who have very powerful voices that is spreading what I know is disinformation that is inaccurate information. And I want to make sure people have the facts. Someone like you would be able to share this information and, and back it up with data because we have data that backs up back up everything that, that you will say. So I want to make sure I bring experts like you um, to the people of the Cayman Islands to be able to have that information just pretty much to fulfill one of your mission is to, you know, give them that information so they could make um, informed decisions. And, and again, it should be an easy decision once you know what the data is showing. Right. Um, but the first question I have for you is why do those who have received the vaccine need to, to receive a booster now? And um, how frequently do you think boosters will be um, coming about in the future? Yeah, so unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot of variation on illnesses across the world with regard to how well vaccines work. There are some conditions, let's think of tetanus. I think most people remember receiving a tetanus shot. Tetanus, you only have to update every 10 years or so. And so your immunity to tetanus does not wane very much over time. But if we think of things like the seasonal flu, we're usually getting an annual flu shot. And that's because our immunity to a lot of conditions, including COVID-19, does not last forever. And this is either immunity when you get vaccinated or immunity from when you actually get infected with the virus. It does not last forever. And because that immunity wanes over time, for certain populations, we want to give a booster dose. Again, it's just like the seasonal flu vaccine, and that kicks your immune system back into high gear. It you know, has your body, and it gives it the ability to protect itself if it were to come across the virus. And so right now, um, you know, the mRNA vaccines in the United States, which are Pfizer and Moderna, I know in the Cayman Islands, right now it's predominantly Pfizer. Boosters have been approved. For older adults, people 65 years of age or older, because in part, they're at very high risk of severe illness if they were to get COVID-19. It's also been approved for younger adults who are in high-risk areas, like if they live in long-term care facilities, if they have medical conditions that place them at high risk of severe disease, so you think of something that maybe impacts their immune system, and those adults who may also be at high risk of exposure. You might think of like a physician who is constantly treating people with COVID-19. 
in all of those groups, and we think even you know, per, in particular about the seniors in our population, they were vaccinated early on. And so it's been well over six months since they received both of their doses of Pfizer. And so we are starting to see some data coming out of Israel and even some data now from the United States that again, just suggests that even though these vaccines are very effective at reducing the risk of severe illness and death, which is the primary reason we develop these vaccines, that effectiveness tends to go down a little bit over time. And so again, even though they still are very effective, we're giving these booster doses, making them available, just so we can up that risk reduction really high so that again, if people are exposed to the virus in the future, their likelihood, maybe they'll get infected, but their likelihood of getting severely ill or dying is exceedingly small. So some people might want to argue, well, it's just big pharma. They, they could have done this better. What would you say to that? Well, you know, in all honesty, when we when we think about these vaccines, it, it truly is. I heard a colleague of mine talk about it more like a moonshot, like when we said we're going to put a man on the moon and we did it so much more quickly than ever before. You know, this really is in some ways a miracle that we were able to pull this off. But it's also in some ways not surprising to me. The reason that we were able to develop vaccines that were extremely effective and extremely safe in such a very small window of time is because first of all, unlike how it usually is where there's a lot of competition on vaccine development, you had people from all over the world, the best and brightest scientists sharing information, working collaboratively. We then had a massive infusion of money to, to be able to support this cause, not only money, but the resources required to make these vaccines. We were building off of an existing technology, you know, the mRNA technology that underlies Pfizer and Moderna. It's not brand new. It's something that had been under development for decades, but we never had a pandemic to then test them. And then most importantly, we removed a lot of the red tape. You know, when, when these clinical trials are moving forward, there's just a lot of time between the various steps where there's a lot of just bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. And so when you remove the red tape, you give not unlimited resources, but a ton of resources. You bring, you bring the best and brightest together from all over the place. You can actually achieve what was achieved. And the things that were not sacrificed, I want to be very clear about this. We did not sacrifice the threshold to prove that these vaccines are both very safe and very effective. Those things, you know, we had tens of thousands of people in the Pfizer and the Moderna clinical trials. And again, the bar was very high for safety. You know, the risk is not zero. There are some severe side effects that are exceedingly rare. And again, when you balance that versus what we know COVID-19 can do to you, um, again, the, the, the safety of the vaccines is very good. And more importantly, again, I think if you would have asked scientists prior to the vaccines being available, most of them would have said, if the vaccine ends up reducing your risk, of hospitalization or death by 50%. It halves your risk. Most people would have said, yeah, that would be really great. And what we're seeing is numbers near 90%, even for the Delta variant. And so uh, I think it's incredible. I, I don't think, you know, there's, there's always money to be made by big pharma, but the people who are reviewing the information, who are making recommendations on booster doses and on the vaccination schedule when it comes to COVID-19, they're scientists that do not have a vested interest in big pharma. So the rec recommendations that are coming out, and I'm somebody who reviews all of these data as well, 
The recommendations have nothing to do with profiteering. The recommendations have to do with how can we best protect people from severe illness from COVID-19. And, and we do have, again, some people that are saying, well, the vaccines are not, especially the Pfizer, because that's the one that is FDA approved, but still saying, even though it's right on the FDA website, that the F, there's no FDA approval and there's a bunch of nuances. And uh, what would you have to say to someone that is spreading that information? Yeah, there's full approval for this vaccine. You know, the, the vaccine has been authorized by the FDA to use against COVID-19. You know, another one that you hear so often is well, what about the ingredients in the vaccine? Why is it that uh, these manufacturers don't make information available on what ingredients are in there? And again, the thing that I would say to that is it is actually required by law in the United States to list all of the ingredients. And I actually put this down. Uh, I want to quote the Centers for Disease Control in the United States because People are concerned and they have a right to be concerned about what's put in my vaccine. And so they say vaccine ingredients vary by manufacturer, but none of the vaccines contain eggs, gelatin, latex, or preservatives. All COVID-19 vaccines are free from metals such as iron, nickel, cobalt, lithium, and rare earth alloys. They are also free from manufactured products such as microelectrics, electrodes, carbon nanotubes or nanowired semiconductors. And I say all of those things because some of the in these ingredients like metals or like microchips, when people think that the vaccines are being used to deliver a microchip to track us, all of those things are false. Anybody can go to a website now and see all of the ingredients that are in these vaccines. And to be honest, if people wanted to track us, they don't need to embed a microchip. We're all walking around with cell phones and it's easy to track us from the cell phone. So again, a lot of people are spreading misinformation. Um, you know, the fact that these are not approved for use and are not authorized, are not safe and effective. Those are just not true at all. And again, the ingredients are published on all of the vaccines. Got it. And, and a lot of people are also saying that natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity. Is there any credibility to that statement at all? Yeah, so the one thing I do want to give some big credibility to is the fact that there is a such thing as natural immunity. You know, when you get exposed to the COVID-19, you know, the virus that causes COVID-19, most people do develop an immune response. Now, it depends on a lot of different factors, how much virus you get exposed to. Um, you know, for example, if you get exposed to a lot of virus and you end up really sick and you're hospitalized, or you're in the intensive care unit and you recover, you tend to have built a very strong immune response because your body is really trying to fight that very profound infection. But there may be some people who are asymptomatic and they don't develop a very strong immune response, maybe no antibodies at all or very few antibodies. But generally speaking, if you get exposed to enough of the virus, you can develop a good response and good immunity through natural infection. But you are, we, we'd much rather you get immunity from the vaccine. The vaccines were designed to help your body defend itself. It's not injecting anything that stays in you. Basically what the vaccine does, when they put that injection into your arm, there's a message that's being delivered to the cells of your body. And that message is basically like a most wanted poster, right? It's showing your body, this is what parts of the virus look like. 
if you see these parts in the future, we're going to marshal up the soldiers of your immune system. And if you see it or get exposed to it in the future, now your body's very good at defending itself. And so ultimately, that's what the vaccine is doing. And it's you don't have to put yourself at risk to what COVID-19 can confer. And it's, it's not just being hospitalized or dying. We're hearing of all kinds of symptoms. You know, COVID-19 does not just attack your respiratory system. It attacks your cardiovascular system, your neurological system, so many different parts of your body. And we're learning about people who have what's called long COVID. These symptoms, even if maybe they were asymptomatic at the beginning or just had mild illness, six months after they were infected, they still have headache and fuzziness and difficulty thinking and all of these long-term ramifications. So why put yourself at risk of all of those things that the virus can cause to get your immunity if you can get immunity through a vaccine, which doesn't cause any of those things? And then the final thing that I'll say about natural immunity and vaccine-acquired immunity, even for people who have been exposed to the virus, who have built an immune response, and who have recovered from the virus, even those people benefit from at least one additional dose of let's say the Pfizer vaccine. So there was a study that came out and they compared all people who had already recovered. So they were exposed to the virus, developed an immune response and recovered from their infection. People who also got vaccinated were half as likely to become infected again than people who had recovered, but who ended up not getting vaccinated. So again, you'd rather build immunity from the vaccine because then you don't incur any of the risks of the virus itself because it can inflict some considerable damage. And even if you've already been exposed to the virus in the past, there is clear data that shows that there's an advantage to still getting vaccinated. So some people might say, well, I'm really healthy and all, all I got to do is continue to keep my immune system up. And so there's a very, you know, looking at the big numbers, not there's a smaller percentage of people who die from COVID or have a real significant effect from COVID. And, and if I'm young and healthy, that's, COVID's, I'm going to beat COVID. What would you say to them? Yeah, so I want to be honest to people. There is a big dose-response relationship. So the younger you are, generally speaking, the less likely you are to end up being hospitalized, or dying from COVID. That is absolutely true. Also true is, again, generally speaking, the healthier you are, if you don't have any other chronic conditions, the less likely it is that if you get infected, you will end up with more severe illness. But that is absolutely not universal. There are plenty of people, I'll give you a statistic that's kind of shocking. So in Florida, during this most recent Delta surge, we had higher hospitalization rates for people of all age groups than we had ever had at any point in the pandemic. And that, as you can imagine, caused more mortality than we had ever seen at any point in the pandemic, far higher mortality. And so what we learned during the Delta surge is that for people in just the two month period during the Delta surge, there were more people under 50 years of age who died from COVID-19 in just that about 60 day window than had died in the previous 513 days. So COVID-19 can absolutely infect and cause serious damage in otherwise young and healthy people. 
So although the risk is less, we learn from Delta that young, healthy people can still get infected, they can still end up hospitalized, they can still end up on a ventilator, and they can still end up dying. And so even though your risk is very small, why not make it that much smaller by getting vaccinated? I do know some people are out there spreading information about the vaccine is what causes variants. Is that true? No, not at all. So variants emerge from what a virus naturally does. It's almost like the virus's way of battling back against us. So each time, so when a virus gets in, so let's say it's the, the virus that causes COVID-19, when it gets into the cells of your body, it's just going to replicate, make more and more and more copies of the virus. And the virus also inflicts damage on your cells. And the more damage that it does, the more it's able to replicate. Again, that's the job of a virus. Well, each time it replicates, it makes copies of itself, there can be copying errors in the genetic material of the virus. These are called mutations. It's completely natural. Well, a lot of times, most times, in fact, these mutations are benign. It doesn't really do much to the way that the virus functions. But sometimes these mutations can give an advantage to the virus. It can make it so that it passes from person to person more easily. That's what happened with the Delta variant. The Delta variant passes from person to person so much more easily. We call that increased transmissibility. Other mutations can make it so that it's capable of causing more severe disease in people. Other mutations can make it so that it maybe is better at hiding from our immune system. Those are the ones that we're scared about, but it is not people getting vaccinated that causes mutations and variants. Variants are part of the natural process when a virus replicates. But the key point about all of this is the more unvaccinated people that they, there are, not in Florida, not in the United States, not in the Cayman Islands, but across the world, the higher is the likelihood that these concerning variants will emerge the likelihood that we'll have a variant that is better at evading our immunity or is better at causing more severe illness. The more vaccinated people that we have across the globe, the lower is the likelihood that these concerning variants will emerge. And so that's why, you know, I was really impressed. I felt like the Cayman Islands should have been giving me a talk because according to Bloomberg, you rank fifth highest among all countries in full vaccination rates. And I think that's incredible. The, the United States is certainly not that high. We're at about, um, you know, just under 60%. And in Florida, we're right at about 60% of our population that is fully vaccinated. So you're doing a great job. But you may have heard people say, nobody is safe until we're all safe. And that's because a lot of your neighbors around you, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua, a lot of these countries have less than 20% of their population that is fully vaccinated. And so again, the more people that are vaccinated across the globe, the less likely it is that these concerning variants will emerge and take hold. And certainly we've learned a lot through this Delta surge that it can inflict a lot of damage when these variants arise. And so no truth to the notion that increasing vaccination rates somehow causes variants. That is not true. And one of the things that you might not know, the Cayman Islands um, is, is a very diverse island, especially in those countries that are nearby. Honduras, Nicaragua, Belize, Guatemala. And uh, we have a lot of people from some of those 
areas. Jamaica is an area that's right next door that has a lot of people coming to the Cayman Islands. And of course, a lot of those countries have a very low vaccination rate. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's one of the things that in general, and again, you can still have communities, countries with very high vaccination rates. We have states with very high vaccination rates, but you'll still see flare-ups caused by Delta. A lot of hospitalizations, a lot of deaths, because there are pockets of communities that tend to have low vaccination rates. And these viruses are very good at finding those vulnerable populations and preying upon them. But yeah, I did a little bit of research because admittedly, I did not know a great deal. I've never been to the Cayman Islands, but one of the things I loved when I read about them is the diversity of the population. You know, I've, I've lived in two cities in my life. Tampa is actually a very racial and ethnically diverse community. And the other place that I lived in is arguably the most racial and ethnically diverse city in the entire United States, and that's Houston, Texas. And so I love the variability, but again, I, I would imagine that a lot of people are going to come from surrounding areas if it's easier to have access to a COVID-19 vaccine. Because again, I think that's part of the reason why the Cayman Islands has done so well. But as you, you are learning, even though you have such a high vaccination rate, you can still have cases start to emerge. And, and again, there are people who are fully vaccinated who can still get infected and still experience severe disease. You know, getting fully vaccinated does not mean you have 100% protection. There is considerable protection, but you can see this emerge. But my suspicion is the majority of new cases and certainly the majority of new hospitalizations and deaths that may emerge in the Cayman Islands are more likely to be from unvaccinated people. Certainly that it is the truth in the United States. If you are unvaccinated, you are many, many times more likely to end up in the hospital and die compared to people who are fully vaccinated. We're going to start taking some questions from those who are starting to write them in in just a little bit. After this question, we'll bring some up and then we'll get back to some other questions I have. But out of the vaccines available, is there one that's better or performing better than the other ones? Um, I know, like I said, we have Pfizer, AstraZeneca is one also available in the Cayman Islands. Um, I know we don't have that in America, so I'm not sure what data you have on that. But if you do, we'd love to hear your feedback on that. Yeah, so there was actually a, a recent uh, study that came out and there was a direct comparison, at least of the three vaccines that are available in the United States. These were the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. I know Pfizer is the predominant one in the Cayman Islands and also the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which admittedly is using a very similar approach as the AstraZeneca vaccine. So even though AstraZeneca is less commonly used, you can almost consider the results for, for J&J &J very similar to AstraZeneca. And when they did a direct comparison, you did have some variability in the effectiveness. And when I say the effectiveness, again, this is the risk reduction. So for example, for Moderna, the risk reduction was 93%. So somebody who is fully vaccinated with the Moderna vaccine has a 93% risk reduction of severe illness, hospitalization, or death compared to somebody who is not vaccinated at all. For Pfizer, that risk reduction was 88%, so still very close to 90%. And for Johnson & Johnson, it was 71%. When I looked at AstraZeneca, it was similar, which makes sense. It's similar to the Johnson & Johnson. Two shots of AstraZeneca was about a 67% risk reduction. So although there is a considerable protection from all of the vaccines that are available, both in the Cayman Islands and the United States, 
you do get a little bit of a differentiation. The mRNA vaccines seem to perform better. So in the Cayman Islands, Pfizer is performing a little bit better than AstraZeneca. And that's why you're starting to see, at least in the United States, the recommendation is for all adults 18 years of age and older who got a Johnson & Johnson single shot, two months after that, the recommendation is that they can go get a booster shot. And the interesting thing is they're finding that mixing and matching. So if you got a Johnson & Johnson as your first shot, now getting a Pfizer or a Moderna booster shot, that can increase your immune response even more so than getting another Johnson & Johnson dose. So for people who maybe got the AstraZeneca the first time in the Cayman Islands, if they are to get a booster dose, a booster dose with Pfizer would probably elicit a very good immune response. And so again, the take home message ultimately was that thankfully, all of these vaccines are pretty effective, even against the Delta variant, but you do find some differences in their effectiveness. Perfect. Well, Sandra, what do we have going on in the uh, comments from our viewers who are watching? I don't know if you're still on mute because we're not hearing you. I think your microphone's dead. So <laughs> I'll let you sort that out and I'll go on to our next question in the meantime. So does the data support children getting vaccinated? Absolutely. You know, already in the United States, uh, we have approval uh, for Pfizer for children who are 12 to 17 years of age. There's actually been a number of studies that have been conducted. And the beauty of it is, it, you know, the data are, are very, very clear. And in fact, um, if we're going to talk about kids, I'd like to share my screen if that's okay. I put a few visualizations because hearing me talk is pretty boring. And I think sometimes visualizations bring things to life. So give me just a second. Let me see if I can go ahead and share my screen. Okay. And let's see, almost there. Okay, so hopefully you can see a presentation, almost like a slide. Yep, we can see it. So I wanna talk a few things that I think are important about kids because I do think us understanding risk is really important because as I mentioned earlier on, the risk of severe illness is much lower in children than it is in older adults. So I've put together a, a few different visualizations to help articulate a few important points, and I'll, I'll try and walk us through this. So the first thing is, this is a visualization of the hospitalization rates in Florida pretty much from September of 2020 until the current time. So I just ran these data from today. And so you can see for all age groups, each of these lines is a different age group. So for example, the red line over here is people 80 years of age or older you tend to see we had a very bad winter surge and then we had a really bad Delta surge. So what I wanna point out is if you look at the black line almost at the bottom, these are the pediatric hospitalization rates. And so when you compare the likelihood of hospitalization among children to other adult age groups, you can see how much lower it is. And in part that's because the likelihood of hospitalization among the older age groups is so high. But again, that's really important to point out that even during, so this is now just focusing in on the pediatric popula population in Florida and hospitalization rates. So 
even at the peak of our Delta surge, which again was the worst that we had ever experienced among children, the likelihood of a child getting hospitalized due to COVID-19 was about one in 6,000 children being hospitalized, not every day, every week. So again, this is not something, you know, some people would look at that number and say, well, wow, you know, that, that still ends up being a lot of children. And they're right. But again, the risk was one in about 6,000 children each week. And right now, more recently, because we've had such a steep decline of late, the risk is about one in 25,000 children being hospitalized with COVID-19 each week. So just to put that risk in context, and for mortality now, for deaths, this is the entire United States. And this is a table, I put a red box around basically the pediatric age groups, zero to four, five to nine years of age, 10 to 14 and 15 to 19. And so I just wanna focus on a few key numbers. So the first one is this second from the last column. This is basically the likelihood of, let's say a child zero to four years of age is about one in every 97,000 or so has died from COVID-19. One in every 97,000 in our population. For children who are five to nine and 10 to 14, the risk is even lower, right? It's one in every 300,000. So again, the likelihood of death is very small for most in the pediatric age group. And even when we look about, well, among children who die, because children unfortunately die for other reasons as well, we can say that one in about every 199 deaths to a child zero to four years of age is from COVID. So even among kids who are dying, COVID, although it's the eighth most common cause of death, it's still not one of the most common. So again, death from COVID-19 is very rare in children. Here's the big but. <laughs> but this is now in the United States. These are pediatric hospitalization rates. And so what you notice is more recently during the Delta surge, we had more children hospitalized, just like I showed you for Florida, more children being hospitalized than at any other time during the pandemic. And this is when, if you look at all age groups combined, the Delta surge did not result, at least in the United States as a whole, did not result in more adults being hospitalized than ever before, but it did result in more children being hospitalized than ever before. And collectively, since August 1st of 2020, we've had nearly 67,000 children being hospitalized due to COVID-19. That, as I understand it, is pretty much the entire population of the Cayman Islands. So it's not like it's rare when you add up all the numbers. And so again, this graphic is showing you one thing on the left that during Delta, we had a tenfold increase in the likelihood of children zero to four years of age being hospitalized. But the big thing when we talk about vaccinations in children, so when we look, and I wanna speak slowly about this, when we look in children 12 to 17 years of age, who have been fully vaccinated, their likelihood of being hospitalized is 10 times lower than children who are not vaccinated. So vaccinations in the 12 to 17 year old age group reduce risk dramatically. And again, this is a graphic from the CDC. The top line is showing you, uh, actually these are case rates. So new case rates, the top line is unvaccinated kids. The bottom line is fully vaccinated kids. And so what I put here is basically almost what I just said is the likelihood of new infection with COVID-19, so not hospitalization, but infection with COVID-19 is 10 times higher in an unvaccinated child 
compared to a fully vaccinated child. And this really is the same when we talk about death. And so the last thing I want to talk about is, you know, the, when we talk about it's important for adults to get vaccinated too, because we have found that when we have communities that have more adults who are vaccinated, that tends to also reduce the likelihood of hospitalization in children that cannot get a vaccine yet. So children younger than 12, because it almost forms like a protective bubble. Children are now surrounded by family members and people at school who are more likely to be fully vaccinated and that is more protective. And what this graphic that I've got up is showing. So what I did is I basically looked around the country at what were the vaccination rates in each state prior to the Delta surge. So basically, how resilient were these states to battling Delta based on their vaccination rate? And what you can see clearly here is that the states that had the two lowest levels of vaccination rates, that's the red line and the orange line, they had much higher hospitalization rates during Delta. You can see it doesn't matter the age group, whether it's the pediatric age group, 18 to 19, 20 to 29, all the way up to the 80 plus year olds. Those red and orange lines, the low vaccinated communities had much higher vaccination rates than did the lower two blue lines or the more heavily vaccinated states. So clearly, and again, the final thing that I'll show you, you know, in response to this question is just this is clear. Again, this is now of all age groups. When we look at on the left is cases, new infections. On the right is deaths from COVID-19. The message is the same that when you compare people who are unvaccinated to people who are fully vaccinated, they're at six times higher likelihood of testing positive for COVID-19, and they're more than 11 times more likely to die from COVID-19. So that was it. I'm going to stop sharing my screen now. Okay. Thank you very much for that. So I believe Sandra did get her audio issue worked out. So let's uh, get some of the comments from the chats. Okay. Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, we've got Wee who's joining us this evening, and Nona says, since the pandemic, Cayman had its first ICU COVID case from local transmission just a few weeks ago. Based on your expertise on the rate of transmission, what is the likely scenario? Um, community spread was present all along for the past 19 months since March of 2020, or community spread started around August of 2021, two months ago when about 50 quarantine breaches from returning travelers was reported? Yeah, so to be honest, in order to answer this question sufficiently, I would love to look at detail at the data from the Cayman Islands. But what I can tell you what the challenge is now in terms of predicting what's gonna happen with this current surge, at least part of the reason why you're seeing this surge, you know, it could be a relaxation of what we call those mitigation strategies, the preventive efforts to block transmission of the virus from person to person. And that's things like social distancing, wearing face masks, trying to do as many things outdoors as possible. If you are in public indoor settings or in schools, trying to ventilate the air, filter the air, and of course, getting vaccinated. And so my suspicion is the Delta variant has a lot to do with this. Why? Because when we talked about those mutations, that confer an advantage to these variants, the big thing about Delta is it's way more transmissible than earlier versions of the virus. And so 
on average, let's say we had a purely susceptible population. Nobody was protected from vaccines and we weren't really doing anything to try and curb spread. Every person who got the Delta variant would pass the infection along to eight other people. And so imagine then those eight people each pass it to eight other people. So you can imagine how much transmission would spread because of the characteristics of the Delta variant. Now, thankfully, the Cayman Islands has obviously been doing a lot to block transmission. You're getting a lot of people who are vaccinated and you're probably engaging in a lot of those mitigative uh, you know, efforts. But again, that's the danger here with Delta. As we learned in Florida, even though vaccines were widely available, once it started to spread, it's very good at finding those vulnerable pockets in communities and causing a rapid amount of spread among those communities. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but that's one of the concerns and what's happened. You know, we, we saw it happen in India. We saw it happen in the United Kingdom. And then, of course, we saw it happen predominantly in the southeastern United States. Okay, thank you very much. We've got Alice who is watching and uh, giving a shout out, says uh, good evening to Kevin, Sandy, and Jason and everyone else. Uh, Rachel says, good evening. We're currently having a spike in community cases after a long period in a bubble. Uh, but so far, hospitalizations have been minimal. What's the usual timeline with the Delta outbreak and hospitalizations? Yeah, so Delta, you know, once somebody gets infected with Delta, the time to development of symptoms is a little bit shorter of a window. And so if somebody was going to develop severe illness, that time period is less. You know, it might be five, you know, four to six days, I would say on average, from when you get exposed to the virus to when you start to develop symptoms, if you are going to develop symptoms. But one of the things I, I learned from that really excellent question from Rachel is you notice that there are a lot of new infections, but not yet a lot of hospitalizations, thankfully. And so that's a key aspect of your very high vaccination rate. I know we want to continue to increase it, but this is what vaccination does. So remember, when they were developing these vaccines and they had these clinical trials, the primary goal was not really to prevent people from getting infected at all. The primary goal of the vaccines and something that they're very good at doing is preventing people from getting severely ill. So fully vaccinated people, although they're less likely to get infected than somebody who is not vaccinated, they can still get infected. Because remember what I told you the vaccines do. They put a most wanted sign in your body and it marshals up the soldiers of your immune system so that if it sees the virus, it can immediately defend itself. So if you're exposed to the Delta variant and you're fully vaccinated, there's a likelihood that you could still get enough virus to be infected and to pass it along to other people. But because your immune system has that most wanted sign up, as soon as the virus starts to invade your body, it's wonderful at attacking the virus and keeping you out of the hospital. So again, fully vaccinated people can still end up in the hospital, but I think in part, that's why you're starting to see maybe a rise in cases, but not yet a significant rise in hospitalizations because maybe a significant portion of people who are getting infected are fully vaccinated and are therefore at much lower risk of ending up in the hospital, in the ICU or dying. Hmm, very interesting. All right, so um, Priscilla says, how long after COVID infection can a person get vaccinated? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think once you fully recovered, you know, now they've really been shortening the time frame. I would say, to be honest, if you've had a COVID-19 infection, you've completely recovered. I would say if you've waited 30 days, it's perfectly fine for you to go ahead and get vaccinated as well. Because as I alluded to earlier, even though your body is going to build up an immune response to your infection, you don't know how strong that response is going to be. And regardless, we found that when people who have recovered from a previous infection get fully, well, get at least one other dose of Pfizer, their immune response is so much stronger and it confers them a lot more risk reduction. So again, if they get exposed to the virus in the future, they're less likely to get reinfected. And even if they are reinfected, they're much less likely to end up in the hospital. All right, thank you very much. Um, we have Jay who says, as Cayman has been shut for most travelers and free of COVID until recently, are we at a greater risk of more serious cases as we have no antibodies from actually catching COVID? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, you, you found that some states during the Delta surge, maybe they didn't experience as pronounced of an increase during Delta because they had a worse surge in the winter and you had built up more immunity. So you're right, there might be more susceptibility because fewer people have natural immunity. You haven't had many cases, not that many people have been infected, which to be honest, that is a wonderful thing, but not a lot of people have natural immunity because not a lot of people have been infected. But you do have about 80% or more people who are fully vaccinated. So there's strong vaccine acquired immunity in the population, but absolutely, if you were to get increasing surges of Delta, there are a lot of people that if they are not yet fully vaccinated, they're unlikely to have been exposed to the virus in the past, which means they have no immunity to it. And so depending on their characteristics, if they have other comorbidities, what their age is, they may be at high likelihood of ending up in the hospital. Mm. All right. <clears throat> Jay has a follow-up question. He says, finally, um, a combination of any info on having COVID and then also being vaccinated. Oh, sorry, I think I missed one of his questions, which I know you'd answered before, but mm -hmm. he's saying, is there any evidence that antibodies from catching COVID are better or worse than antibodies from the vaccine? No, but both can be pretty strong. So again, if somebody told you that natural immunity doesn't do anything, that, that is not true. There's a lot of variability though in natural immunity. Again, how much virus were you exposed to? Where you may be exposed last year when it was a different variant, will those antibodies defend you against a newer variant? We know a lot of information because we've conducted these studies for people who received the vaccine. And the beautiful thing about the vaccine is it tends to be very protective against all known variants of the virus thus far. Maybe there's a little bit of variation. Maybe it's a slight reduction in effectiveness against the Delta variant, but we know a lot about vaccine acquired immunity. And so again, I would not risk myself, uh, you know, getting infected in order to get immunity. The vaccine is a much better pathway. And again, if you have been infected previously, you could have a, a strong immune response for a while. You could also have a weak immune response. It's, it's very hard to tell. Whereas with the vaccine, there's a much higher likelihood that you'll have a strong immune response as long as you don't have a condition that impedes your immune system's ability to function. Like if you're a cancer patient on radiation treatment, your immune system may be compromised 
And so for people who have those immune compromising positions, uh, conditions, it's important to know the vaccine may not work as well in them. In fact, it's unlikely to work as well. So maybe it's not a 90% risk reduction. Maybe the risk reduction is only 50% or 30% because they have some sort of condition that is not making their, you know, their immune system doesn't work as well as it should. Mm-hmm. And a final question from Jay, he's asking about a combination, uh, what happens when someone uh, gets COVID and then they're vaccinated after that? Yeah, again, superb questions. I'm glad Jay is so engaged. Um, Again, it confers at least one additional dose. So for people who have recovered, they've had natural immunity, maybe it's been a couple of months, when they get that additional dose of Pfizer, it causes a much more heightened immune response. And this is both antibodies, this is what they call cellular immunity. It just makes all of those immune system soldiers in your body so much better at fighting the infection if you were to be exposed to the virus in the future. So to to make my message very clear, even if you've been exposed to the virus in the past and have recovered, it is a very good idea. The data are strong to suggest that getting a dose of the Pfizer vaccine will increase your immune response that much more. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, Sarah wants to know, will the vaccine be available for kids one to three years old in the future? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's some data that is emerging. So first, let me talk about maybe the five to 11 year old group. You know, in the in the United States, we just had uh, an advisory panel to the Food and Drug Administration that basically voted unanimously. I think they had one person who abstained from voting, uh, but they all said, look, when we look at the data for children five to 11 years of age, there is strong evidence that this this vaccine is very, very safe and very, very effective. Now, There are about 2,000 children in those clinical trials, and different from the clinical trials in other age groups, the ones in the 5 to 11-year-olds, they didn't look at the endpoint of hospitalization. Like, the goal of the vaccine was not hospitalizations and deaths, primarily because those are already pretty rare in younger children. So what they looked at is, does the vaccine reduce the likelihood of what they call symptomatic disease? A child gets the virus and gets sick enough to have symptoms. And so that's where the vaccines were very, very effective, about a 90% risk reduction um, in the likelihood of symptomatic illness. And that's a good sign. And when you consider how safe these were in children, again, I would fully expect that the, the Food and Drug Administration will fully approve it. Then the CDC advisory panel will probably recommend it. And then the CDC ultimately will also approve it. And I'm guessing by maybe early next month in November in the United States, we'll have the vaccine available for the five to 11 year olds. My son is three years old, so he does not fall into that age group. So they're starting to collect and assemble information on kids who are younger than five. And if I had to take a guess, I I don't expect any sort of approval um, or really complete discussion until the early part of next year. Okay. Uh, Carol weighs in. She says, those graphs are amazing, but I know people who still won't believe them, but wow, vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Yeah. You know, I I really can't appreciate when I talk to any groups, I don't berate people who are not fully vaccinated because the information is coming from so many different sources. And depending on if you get your information primarily from legitimate news sources, not so good news sources, from Facebook, from Twitter, from Instagram, from WhatsApp, you know, depending on where you're getting your information from, things that are false spread like wildfire. And sometimes 
it's innocent. And I'll give you an example of when it's innocent. And sometimes it's intentional. People are out there trying to confuse you and try. they don't have to convince you that the vaccine is dangerous. They just have to convince you to question it. And people who question it aren't going to get vaccinated. And so it is hard to know what the reliable sources of information are. And so what I can tell you is, yes, those visualizations bring things to life. Yes, there will be people who look at it and just because of who I am, they will say, well, I don't believe it. Those are accurate data. Those are data that have been vetted. They're coming from the Centers for Disease Control. Um, but people can produce similar looking graphs that tell you a completely false story. And the scary thing is people who are really lying to you intentionally, they don't speak like a scientist. Like I'm always gonna tell you, I'm always gonna be cautious and say, well, based on what we know now, but data is emerging over time. People who are lying are like, I'm 100% confident in what I'm telling you. And people are soothed by people who are 100% confident. So it really is a challenge to wade through all of the information and make sense of it. And that's where it's important to go to reliable sources, You know, going to the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, they haven't been perfect with their recommendations, but the data that they put out there are very sound. There is a university in the United States, Johns Hopkins. I love their site because they produce not only reliable information, but information that is very easy to understand. And so one of the things that can happen is unintentional spread of bad information. And the perfect example from this is your listeners may have heard of uh, a myth that was going around there that the COVID-19 vaccines can impact a woman's fertility. And so this actually, I believe, started innocently. So if you know anything about the coronavirus, it's this ball with these little spike proteins, right? We, we, most of us have seen a picture of it. And so these spike proteins is essentially what the vaccines are targeting. So when the vaccines get in your body, they tell your body to produce things that look just like the spike proteins. Has nothing to do with the virus, but it makes your body respond to that spike protein, develop antibodies. And so then when it sees the real thing, it can attack it. Well, there's this protein in reproduction that is known as syncytion one, which is also called a spike protein just because of the way that it looks. So some people said, well, if this is the same spike protein that the vaccine is targeting, and it's not, it's, it's just like you hear um, somebody's telling you a story and they're like, um, well, Patricia got into a car accident and you're like, oh my God, Patricia. And they're like, no, 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 not that Patricia, another one, right? Same name, but very different. Same thing happened here. They thought it was the same spike protein and it is completely different. And in fact, when we look at these clinical trials, Many women, you know, 23 women, I think it was, got pregnant while they were in the clinical trial after taking the vaccine. So the vaccines do not impact a woman's fertility. I think it started innocently, but it spread like wildfire on social media. And everybody, including my own niece, became incredibly concerned, even though there was no real harm. And in fact, it's really important for pregnant women to get the vaccine because we learned in the United States 23 women who were pregnant died in the month of August alone from COVID-19. And we know that COVID-19 increases the risk of delivering a child that is preterm. And we know that preterm children have all sorts of problems. So anyway, that that's I, I really empathize 
with people's challenge of having to wade through all of this information. It can be immensely confusing. And that's why I choose to do all of these talks. You know, this is what I'm trained in. As I mentioned before, I'm an idiot about a lot of things, but about this, I really do know my stuff. And so I'm trying to give people the opportunity to make evidence-based decisions by giving them reliable information and data. All right, Celine, good evening. She's listening in. Priscilla says, I'm vaccinated. My son is not. He's positive and I'm negative so far. We were face-to-face -face, uh, sharing a pillow three days into him being symptomatic. I believe the vaccine worked for me. Yeah, and again, the, the, you'll hear a lot of stories like this. I appreciate this, Priscilla. You're probably right. Um, you know, part of the challenge is we hear a lot of anecdotal stories. Well, what happened to me is, so for example, you might find the rare person who's like, well, I never got vaccinated and I had six friends uh, who, who had all gotten infected. We were inside in my house and I never got infected. It could have been that he got infected and ended up being asymptomatic, but you hear a lot of anecdotal stories. And so that's why what happened to Priscilla on average, when we look at big populations, that's exactly what the vaccines are designed to do. That if you are around other people and you get exposed to the virus, you're less likely to get infected. If you are infected, you're much less likely to develop symptomatic illness where you feel like you've got cold or flu-like symptoms and you're really less likely to get hospitalized or die. So I'm really happy that that was Priscilla's experience. And I think mm -hmm. if you look on a population level, that's what the vaccines are supposed to do. And emerging uh, research has also shown that you're less likely to transmit it to other people if you're vaccinated as well. So yeah, that's primarily, so in the age of Delta, you are less likely to get infected, but the important thing that we were preaching to people and why for a while there, we were saying it's still a good idea, especially in low vaccination areas for a full, like when, I'll give you an example. So I am fully vaccinated. And, and when I go into an indoor public setting, I still mask up. And the reason I do is because even though I'm less likely to get infected, if I do get infected with Delta, I can still get a lot of virus in my upper respiratory tract, in my nose, and I can pass it along to other people. And if those other people are not vaccinated, they're at high likelihood of bad things. So it's important to realize fully vaccinated people, yes, they are absolutely less likely to get infected. But if they get infected with Delta, they can still pass it along to mm -hmm. other people. And so that's why we continue to take precautions even when we're fully vaccinated, especially when we're in public indoor settings and especially when the level of community spread is getting high. Mm -hmm. Very good. Celine is joining us from Brazil. Uh, Amy says, how long do you think it will take for the pandemic to become endemic here in the Cayman Islands, especially given the size of our population? And um, how are we at the start of our first wave? Yeah, I, and, and I, I apologize. I wish I would have had time to really digest all of the data in the Cayman Islands. So I don't want to speak as though I know the data in the Cayman Islands really, really well to say, when do we transition? Um, what I can say is ultimately every country in the world, including, you know, like I, I'm, I'm in Florida, right? We have to ultimately learn to live with COVID-19. I, I do not believe that there is a scenario where we have zero COVID, at least not in the immediate future. And so I'd like to see more leaders of states, communities, countries set goals for where do we want to be? What level, I hate to say, 
what level of spread is acceptable or what level of hospitalizations are acceptable because we really don't want anybody getting sick or anybody ending up in the hospital. But we do need to set clear goals because we do need to learn to live with COVID-19 and balance, you know, the different things that we do to block transmission. Um, of course, you know, more, the more people who are vaccinated, that immensely helps with a return to normal without much concern. But, um, you know, ultimately it, it does become endemic and we are going to hopefully have exceedingly low levels. Yes, people will still get infected, but because most people are protected through vaccination, we see very few people ending up in the hospital, very few people dying. That is a good scenario, I think, for all countries, because if you think about even simple things like the flu, people every year get the flu, get hospitalized with the flu, die from the flu, but we don't stop everything because of what's happening with the flu. The flu is very much endemic. We encourage people to get a flu vaccine every single year, and we try and do things to prevent the spread of the flu, right? We wash our hands. We practice good personal hygiene. I think ultimately, even though COVID-19 is much more dangerous than the flu, we will get to a level where, again, I'd like to see people set goals on this. What level of infection and spread is our goal? And when do we start to relax versus ramp up those preventive behaviors? Um, but that's something that, again, every country is going to have to discuss and think about. And so, again, I apologize. I, I don't know the data in the Cayman Islands well enough to speak specifically about the trajectory, where you're headed, what it's likely to look like, when you can continue to relax preventive measures. I, I don't know that, but I'm happy to digest the information and get back to you on that. All right. Rachel is asking um, if you could give parents and teachers one piece of uh, key advice, what would it be? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not good at giving one key piece of advice. So this is a great question. Um, you know, I think everything is a balance. Um, I, I feel like I get attacked from both sides of the political aisle very frequently in the United States because it, it is very important to convey risk when it comes to children. So I imagine when we're talking about parents and teachers, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about children. And so it is important to convey that the risk of severe illness in children is very low compared to other age groups, but it also is important to you know, present the other side of that. If there are simple steps that we can take to keep children safe, like you know, we all know now, you know, in the United States, we've been discussing this ad nauseum, we all know that it is very detrimental to children to not have them in school, in, in person, right? When, we, when they were doing the online thing in the United States, it didn't work, children were falling back, their mental health was deteriorating. So we knew getting children back in schools in person was a priority. Well, when it's a priority, what can parents and teachers do? Get vaccinated first. Encourage other adults to get vaccinated. Anybody who is a vaccine eligible age, if you have children who are 12 to 17 years of age, get them vaccinated. That's arguably one of the best things that you can do to protect them. But then when they're in these school settings or when they're out in the community, if there are simple steps that we can take, again, one of the big things, this is an airborne illness. If we can filter the air, if we can ventilate the air when we're in public indoor settings, that does wonders. If we can try and socially distance, if we can wear masks, those simple steps that we can take, that would be my message is not to freak out, not to think that, well, if my child gets infected, something really bad is going to happen. Yes, that's a possibility, but it's not a high probability. So don't, don't freak out, but take all of the appropriate steps that you can 
to try and keep your children as safe as possible. And again, number one is get yourselves and other people of vaccine eligible age vaccinated. And then depending on the level of community transmission around you, you know, if it's really, really, really low, almost non-existent, maybe we can start to relax some of those mitigative, uh, you know, things. But if we're starting to see cases rise even a little bit, starting to bear down on those mitigation behaviors. And again, infrastructure is so important. I cannot underscore the importance anymore of if it's possible, filter and ventilate the air. It makes, think about if you're in an indoor setting and somebody is smoking, think about how the smoke dissipates within the air, right? That's almost how you can think of the virus is spreading. So it's kind of permeating, lingering there. What happens if you open a couple of windows in a door? The smoke starts to disappear, right? Same thing with the virus. And if you can have HEPA filters, things that will filter the air as well and remove the virus, or at least a lot of the virus, those things can make big differences, especially inside school settings. We've got lots of questions. Uh, just in relation to the air quality, I was actually having a conversation with someone about this today. Um, if you are, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of offices, once they get a positive case, they might take half a day off or a day off to then do uh, sanitation is what they're calling it, right? Mm -hmm. How important is it to sanitize surfaces? So Sandy, first of all, thank you so much for the question, but you also reminded me of something that I omitted from my previous response, which was really foolish of me. Mm -hmm. If you are sick or your child is sick, do not go to school, do not go to work. That's how the virus spreads. And so that is one of the most important things is if you feel symptoms, don't brush it off. Ah, maybe something else, you know, do not go and interact around other people when you could have COVID-19, get yourself tested immediately. But while you have symptoms, um, please don't, don't go in there. And so um, I apologize, Sandy, I, I, I lost my train of thought. Would you please repeat your question? And sure, I'll absolutely. It's about the importance during the quote unquote desanitization process of cleaning surfaces. Um, yeah, so that's of... always going to be important. And that's yeah. a really good idea. You know, we had an almost non-existent flu season. We had very low respiratory syncytial virus or RSV last winter. It may be very different this winter. So those kind of desanitization things, it makes a little bit of a difference with COVID-19, but it also helps to make sure that people aren't getting the flu, the common cold, RSV, and other viruses like that. So always a good idea. We did learn throughout the pandemic that fomites, which is basically like surfaces, a doorknob, touching those and then touching your face, that is not a key mode of transmission. The key mode of transmission is the virus is airborne and passes from person to person respiratory. So again, I would never discourage that and doing a good um, desanitization of anything. But again, fomites, when we're touching surfaces, it can absolutely pass a lot of illnesses, but it is not the primary tr uh, means of transmission of the virus that causes COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that you mentioned, um, Dr. Salimi, about people staying home because we had a couple of cases today where, you know, uh, people were contacting me saying young, young lady was positive. She knew she was positive and she was at the grocery store shopping. Um, there was another one where his wife is at home positive and then he's out and about doing whatever. Um, he works for a delivery service. Thank God he actually wasn't working today, you know, because she found out she was positive yesterday. Um, a few people, you know, their coworkers are positive and they're, um, there's another incident with a bank worker, a bank teller, in fact, uh, where her 
family member at home is positive and she is being told by her workplace that she has to continue working until HR has time to consider her case. So the advice really, as we see the, the sharp um, increase in community transmission is if you even believe that you're positive, go home, stay home, get tested, um, start with maybe the lateral flow tests is what you'd recommend, Dr. Salimi. Yes. And, and, you know, and there, there is a perfect additional example of why this is so important. Like even when you're doing everything else right, coming to school in this case, sick can cause a lot of damage. So I'll give you that, mm -hmm. that example quickly. In Marin County, California, this is a really, really wealthy county. So they have a lot of means to put a lot of mitigative uh, efforts in place. At the time that this occurred, they had very high vaccination rates. And so what happened was in a classroom setting, they were doing everything right. They had all of the children spaced apart. They had windows and doors open. They had a HEPA filter at the front of the class. So they were doing everything right. The children were wearing masks. So how did there end up being an outbreak, which then ended up going to other classrooms and being taken home? Well, the teacher of that classroom, first of all, was not vaccinated. Mm. Second of all, developed symptoms and still came to class. And third, when she read to the students, she took off her mask. Mm. And so what we saw is kids that were sitting in the first two rows right next to the teacher, there was an 80% attack rate, which means 80% of those children ended up getting infected despite all of the other things that they were doing really well. The kids in the third and fourth row further away from the teacher, I think the attack rate, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was much, much, much lower. So we kind of knew it was coming from the teacher. Those kids ended up passing it to other classrooms. They took it home. You saw parents, grandparents who ended up getting infected. And so that's the point, right? The mistake that the teacher made, again, you, you could say, well, she should have been fully vaccinated, but she certainly should never have come to school after she had developed symptoms. She was indeed positive and transmitted it. So if you are sick, mm -hmm. please, please, please stay home. You can get a rapid test. Check if, if you're, you're positive and only return back when you have no more symptoms and if you test negative. Mm -hmm. All right, Marshall says, great info. Um, I don't know why some people are so hard-headed. <laughs> Go out and get the vaccine <laughs> shot. Uh, Sonia says, what about someone who doesn't have a spleen and has been fully vaccinated as well as they've got the booster? Should they, con should they contract the virus? Are the chances of them getting sick and or require hospitalization? What are the chances? Yeah, fantastic question, Sonia. I will first of all admit that I am not a physician who treats patients. I have a PhD in epidemiology, but I do not see patients. So I won't get too much into the clinical side because that is not my area of expertise, but the spleen obviously has to do with your immune system. And so generally speaking, I think we talked about this earlier. It is important that even though these vaccines are incredibly effective at reducing risk, they are less effective in people who have any condition that would impact their immune systems. And so I would guess that not having a spleen impacts your immune system. So how much less the vaccines might work in a person like that? I don't know the how much side of it, but I do know that I'd be more cautious. Maybe I would still, even though I'm fully vaccinated, take additional precautions, make sure that I, I wear a mask and socially distance if I'm in public indoor settings, make sure that if I know I'm around people who are not fully vaccinated, again, I take additional precautions. I make certain socially distanced from them. Anybody who has an immune compromising conditions, the vaccines may not work as well and likely will not work as well in you to prevent severe illness. Okay. 
Um, Ali says, what happens if you're not aware that you have COVID and you get vaccinated? How will it affect you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I admittedly don't know. I don't think there's going to be a big adverse response because if you think about it, your immune system is kind of already reacting to the infection. Um, I imagine there's plenty of people because remember, there's still a large number of people, whether it's 20%, 40%, a lot of people who got infected, even during Delta. Like in, in Florida, we had over 24 or 22,000 cases per day at our peak. And so that's a lot of people getting infected. And I think that was just the tip of the iceberg. There were way more people who got infected, but they never went out and got tested. They never developed symptoms. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a big question mark. There's just so many people who I think have actually gotten infected. They don't know it. And then they still go and get vaccinated. And you haven't heard of any increased likelihood of any severe adverse side effects. And again, to be clear, most people who get vaccinated are going to maybe like, like any shot that you get, they're gonna get some tenderness, some soreness, some redness at the injection site. They may feel crappy. Like when I got my second dose of my Pfizer vaccine, my goodness, like my wife had actually gotten the second dose three days before me. And as is typical with women versus men, she said, I felt perfectly fine. I got a little bit of soreness in my arm, nothing mm -hmm. else. Me, I had flu-like symptoms. I felt horrible for 18 hours and then I was golden. I felt perfectly fine. That's most people. You're going to feel one of those two things. In some people, you get a rare condition, but it's a severe condition known as anaphylaxis. Again, it's a severe allergic response. It's rare, but it can happen. And it's why when you go and get vaccinated, they say, hey, hang out here for 15 or 20 minutes. That way, if you do develop anaphylaxis, they can immediately treat you with the appropriate medications and make sure nothing bad happens. So we got that one kind of covered. You right. also hear about this heart inflammation, myocarditis and pericarditis that can mm -hmm. happen with people who get the mRNA vaccine. So in the Cayman Islands, that would be the Pfizer vaccine. Again, when we look at this, the likelihood is higher in adolescents, younger people. But again, mm -hmm. it's exceedingly rare. And the really important thing to say about this is the likelihood of this heart inflammation is much, much, much higher after being infected with the virus than it is from the vaccine. So it is a side effect that can happen, but again, you're more likely, even in these adolescents in whom the risk of this severe adverse event is higher, you're still more likely to get it after being exposed to the virus that causes COVID-19. So again, when you weigh the risks and benefits, um, vaccination is, is much more preferred. And the final one that you hear a lot about, um, but maybe not so much in the Cayman Islands is the blood clots. That happened with the J&J &J vaccine in the United States. And again, it is there. It is a risk. Again, nothing has zero risk, but it is exceedingly rare. It tended to happen in younger women, but at a rate of about seven in every one million women who were vaccinated. And again, when you weigh the risks of, uh, of, of vaccination versus the benefits of vaccination, the benefits far outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Wilbert says, do you re recommend aspiration before injection to prevent intravascular injection? Yeah, and, and that one I'm going to defer. Admittedly, I have really no expertise in that domain. Mm -hmm. I would want a clinician, somebody who's treating patients to best mm -hmm. answer that question. All right, so Kevin, let's uh, put that one in the bank and we can always ask that one Absolutely. at a later time. Ahsoka says, um, this. first she says, that, uh, this is my favorite guest so far. Thank you, Kevin and Sandra. And then she says, so Delta presents more like a cold and not like previous cases of COVID. 
which had people in respiratory distress. So that's a question. Yeah. So what we know about Delta is on average, the virulence, the likelihood of causing severe illness is about the same. So even though you might have had a lot more people getting infected, maybe getting tested, and a lot of those people may have had mild symptoms, again, generally speaking, Delta tends to cause about the same severity of illness as other variants of the virus. What you may have heard more of with the original strain is because who did it prey upon initially is people in long-term care facilities. This was before vaccines. This was before a lot of the mitigation strategies that we had put in place. So it seemed to have caused more severe illness because it was preying on a population, again, prior to us really doing much to curb its spread and prior to the vaccines being able to protect it. So it might be because more and more people are vaccinated during the Delta surge that you, you seem to say, well, it's not causing as many people to be hospitalized among those who get infected. And so, but I, I don't think that's the case. If we had apples to apples and we didn't have a lot of vaccinated people and we had this running rampant through nursing homes, uh, Delta would cause as severe illness as the original strain. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, this might be a clinical question, but Jay says, are people on biological drugs like Cosentix, I think is how it's, how it's pronounced, who are vaccinated at a much higher rate of um, who are vaccinated at a much higher rate of hospitalization, or is it just a risk of catching COVID greater? Yeah, and again, that's a good question. I don't know specifically this drug. Again, I, I'm not somebody who is a, a pharmacist, or do I treat patients enough to know that that drug in particular? So I can't speak to it. But I will say that there is strong evidence that people who are on certain drugs, again, certain drugs like steroids, can suppress your immune response and can make it such that even if you're vaccinated, the effectiveness of the vaccines are lowered. So you're more likely to get infected. If you are infected, you're more likely to be hospitalized. Um, you know, essentially the vaccines don't work as well uh, as people who, again, either have immune compromising conditions or are on drugs that can suppress the immune response. All right, thank you, Celine and Soka for those comments. Um, Rachel says, he said that Delta does cause respiratory distress and affects the heart circulatory system and internal organs and can cause uh, long COVID. Also, it is much more transmissible. So thank you, Rachel, for summarizing. Um, Soka is wondering if you have a website that people can visit. Um, there's just not enough time on the show, she says. Maybe we'll have to have you back for round two. Um, she's also saying that she keeps reading where it's more transmissible, but not as dangerous as previous COVID. And she's never heard anyone earlier. Um, COVID had a sore throat or cold only difficulty breathing as a main symptom. So maybe we could just review what some yeah. of the symptoms are. Because yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, well, and I'll give you a perfect example of why Delta yeah. is not less severe. So yeah. we'll just talk about Florida, right? So Florida had a really bad summer surge in 2020. The peak death, so I won't even talk about hospitalizations because I think the discussion about deaths will illustrate that Delta has been immensely dangerous. So pre-Delta, Last year, summer surge, it was really bad. At the peak of the summer surge, the seven-day average number of daily deaths in Florida was 228 people dying from COVID-19 every day. 228. In the winter surge, again, mostly before vaccines were widely available, we had a pretty bad surge. 200 deaths per day at our peak. So we're talking 228 and 200 people dying each day in those two surges. The Delta surge, which occurred after widespread avail uh, availability of vaccines that we know are good at protecting people. 
do you know where we're at? We're over 380 deaths. So the previous high was 228, 380 deaths per day, almost double what we had in the previous surges during the Delta surge. So many people were getting infected. So many people, again, higher hospitalization rates in every age group than we had ever seen at any point in the pandemic happened during the Delta surge. So it is very, very capable at finding vulnerable people. It is very, very capable of putting people in the hospital and it is very capable of killing them. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, Soka says people are going to get cancer from inhaling all the bleach from trying to kill the virus. Well, well, you know, um, and, and, and if I if I could, Sandy, just quickly respond to that. You know, uh-huh. it, it's very easy to make fun of and laugh. And I'm I'm not criticizing the comment, but this is the real danger in misinformation. Um, right. You know, ivermectin, and you know, ivermectin is such an important drug. I mean, it's used to treat things like river blindness, all kinds of parasitic diseases but it really does nothing to treat COVID-19. Now, what it caused because of the influx of misinformation, there was a non-trivial number of people that were using their their animals medication. You know, prescriptions for animals are very different from humans in general. And you had some issues with poison control having to be called. And so, you know, people who are downing bleach or people who are kind of buying into this information, it's easy to laugh at them and say, well, it's obvious. Well. If they think they're getting information from reliable sources mm. and they're thinking this is the way to combat, uh, you know, the spread of the virus and people have scared them about the vaccines, you know, it just shows you how unfortunate it is that, yes, people were downing bleach and people were ending up in the emergency room because they're doing all of these things that won't help them with COVID-19 and can put them at high risk. So it's just, you know, that's why these discussions and these excellent questions are really important to dispel mm-hmm. those myths and to give people accurate info. Right. And I think in that case, Soka meant using bleach to clean. Um, I think most Caribbean people haven't been digesting right, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to clarify, uh, Jay says, why are lateral flow tests not readily available in the You know, US? that's an excellent question that I, I actually do not have the answer to. You know, I, I've seen the availability outside of the United States. I don't know. I don't know if it's a production thing or a dealership thing or who's working with the rapid test that we do get. But yeah, like I, you know, I purchased like, for example, when my son, who's only three, had developed a few symptoms, it seemed like he was getting sick um, after he went back into the school setting. Um, I didn't want to subject him to a test. So I thought, well, you know, I'm right in his face all the time when he's at home. So I took a couple of these rapid tests. So yeah, we've got the Binax now rapid antigen test. We don't have the lateral flow test widely available. And I legitimately don't know why that's the case. I'm glad it's available in the Cayman Islands. Hmm, Very good. Okay, Magdalene says great information. Um, Alice uh, responding, I think most places here are running out of their supply already of lateral flow tests. One thing that we've definitely seen since the community transmission this week in particular is everyone is going to get tested. So I think that's good to know your status. Um, Rachel says, does Delta cause the same symptoms? I think this might've already been answered. As original COVID, it spreads much faster, it's more contagious with a higher viral load. So uh, more people are getting sicker quicker, question mark. Yeah, that, that's an outstanding way of summarizing the information. You know, a lot of people were actually initially concerned, well, we know it's much more transmissible. So on average, a lot more people could be infected in a shorter period of time. 
Um, you know, the incubation period seems to be a little bit shorter than it was for the earlier strains. And we were concerned that maybe it does cause more severe illness. So one of the things we were seeing is, again, you saw the pronounced rise in pediatric hospitalizations. So the question was, well, is it because Delta is just infecting a lot more kids? And so even though kids are at low likelihood of being hospitalized because so many are getting the virus, so many more end up ending up hospitalized. Or is it that when a kid gets the virus and it's the Delta, is the Delta causing more severe illness? And I think the jury may in part be still out on that, but CDC published a couple of papers and the general take home was it doesn't seem like Delta is much more virulent. It seems very comparable in terms of the severity of illness that it causes. And so more people think exactly as that excellent comment said is, it's just much more transmissible. Many more people who are vulnerable end up getting infected. And so you end up with way more people in the hospital. That's certainly what happened in Florida. Right. And we had a mother here a few weeks back who joined the show and she was uh, speaking and you know, her son ended up being COVID positive and then she caught it. And one of the symptoms that stood out for her is the lack of um, smell, losing mm -hmm. her sense of smell. Yeah, my sister and my brother both ended up, uh, you know, that they were maybe a little bit delayed on, you know, they also had some concerns about the vaccine were maybe getting not so accurate information and it took them a while. They both ended up getting vaccinated, but both of them ended up also testing positive for COVID-19 and they both talked about, my goodness, what a pain in the rear the loss of smell is because usually with the loss of smell, what does that mean? When you eat food, you don't taste it very much, if at all. And so it made... Uh, know, made their lives pretty miserable. I want to say, I, I know at least my sister, it happened for a little bit over a month before she started to regain smell. And so that was not a pleasant experience. Hmm. Uh, uh, Miss Carla's saying, excellent show with great information. Lily's also enjoying it. Really informative. We're going to be, begin to wrap it up here. I know we've gone a little bit into overtime. Um, Soka says, I think he doesn't understand that. Yeah, Matt Cleaning, we clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm sorry. I think I try and use every opportunity. We've done a really good job, especially in the United States, of berating and blaming people, blaming people who are not fully vaccinated, blaming yeah. people who drink or inject bleach, blaming people who are taking ivermectin. And I, I just wanted, I, I guess I just needed the opportunity um, to accentuate, we shouldn't be blaming. In some cases, people are just very stubborn, but a lot of times, my God, the information out there is very confusing. So yeah, I, I, I did maybe go a little above and beyond what you meant with that bleach thing. <laughs> All right, so uh, Marina says in regards to the booster, apparently after the first uh, booster, six months after another one has to be taken, will this be every six months onward? Yeah, so we are continuing to digest the data. Obviously, people only started to get vaccinated in the United States in the middle part of December, widespread availability after that. So we're gonna continue to collect the information. How often we're going, I, I think it is um, very likely that we will need boosters, but how often that will end up being, You know, I don't know that it'll necessarily be every six months maybe this booster confers additional protection for another year or two years. Maybe that's going to de depend on age or other factors. So mm -hmm. right now we've got the recommendations that I alluded to earlier. What future recommendations for booster shots? I think we're just gonna have to really digest all of the data and see what it says. Cause we don't wanna be giving booster shots to just everybody if they don't need it, right? If right. the vaccine continues to be immensely effective and preventing people um, you know, from getting severe illness, then we don't need booster shots. But if immunity is waning so much so that now the vaccines don't offer protection and we still have high transmission of the virus, 
that's when we do need booster shots. So again, I think it's a to be continued depending on what the most reliable data say. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of data, it's a good idea just to remind people that in the case of um, the coronavirus and you know COVID-19, basically it's emerging data. Like every single day, we're seeing more and more um, studies that are coming to or leaning towards a particular conclusion um, because you know now we've got over um, at least six billion people that have had a single shot worldwide and over three billion that have had you know double dose so um, when people say well they don't know this and they don't know that I mean it's a fair comment to make for sure mm -hmm. uh, because you know the information is being researched as the numbers are coming in. You know, so, excellent point, um, Sandy. And one of yeah. the challenges with science is, you know, we're always going to try our best, our legitimate best, any good scientist, to give reliable recommendations based on the best available data right now. Mm -hmm. But the data that emerges in the next three months, well, we may need to tweak that. And that's happened a few times. And some people get very frustrated. And I understand those frustrations, but that's the challenge. This is something that's mm -hmm. very new. New, You know, I'm, I'm used to um, kind of complaining about, oh, my God, all of the studies and the literature that we have to read to become experts in our field, it takes a long time, but we have a long time. Never have I been challenged like this to try and really stay up on all of the information on COVID-19 because the number of studies that are being published every single day on this is astronomical. Mm -hmm. And just like for people out there trying to find reliable information, a lot of the studies being published when you really read them they're garbage. So mm -hmm. even though it's another published study, it's garbage. You shouldn't weigh that evidence in, whereas others are outstanding studies. So it, it's a challenging time, but we will continue to look at the most reliable mm -hmm. information and, and make sound recommendations for how we move forward and, and deal with COVID-19 in the future. Yes. And thank God for technology. Absolutely. <laughs> Imagine trying well, to get I wouldn't want to have visited the Cayman Islands for this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Soka says, how is the lateral flow different from the BNAX now antigen self-test? Yeah, and again, admittedly, I don't know a great deal. I haven't studied the lateral flow because I've been so kind of Florida and especially United States centric. And because we don't have widespread availability of the lateral flow test, I haven't really dug into it. So I apologize. That's not something I can, um, you know, accurately address. Okay. And, uh, Jay, we're going to take our final comments and questions here. Jay says with masks. Um, disposal mask, either nurse or N95 type better than cloth mask and mask with vents, are they any good? Yeah, so N95 are exceptional, um, you know, multi-layered mask, surgical mask, all of those are very good, especially if you wear them appropriately. So a good fitting mask is something that you absolutely want. Um, yes, I would agree about the mask with the vents. It might seem like it's a little bit easier to breathe. It still protects the person wearing the mask really well, but maybe doesn't protect people who are around them quite as well. So um, again, N95 are outstanding um, for a great period of time. That's what I was wearing. Now I have a really great um, surgical mask that they hand out at our College of Public Health. I make sure that it's really well fitting and that's what I wear whenever I go in uh, into work or when I'm in public indoor settings. Sometimes if I'm gonna be in non-densely populated areas, but where I wanna be a little bit cautious, I will also wear um, a, a really thick cloth mask. But again, for me, it all depends on the environment that I'm going to be in um, and, and my comfort level as to what I wear. But I would recommend surgical masks and 95s, those are outstanding, but make sure that it fits appropriately because a mask mm -hmm. that doesn't fit well is not obviously not going to be as effective as one that does. 
Yes, and Silka says, um, any mask is better than no mask, and cover your nose, please. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, because I would say, yes, any mask is better than no mask, but when you do see, like, the nose all hanging out and half of their mouth, and the mask ends up, like, down by your chest, like, that's not doing anything. So, yeah, yeah. just just make sure it's, you know, I know a lot of people are well-intentioned, or maybe they feel as though, well, I've got to wear the mask. That was certainly the case for a while around here, and you would just see all kinds of crazy thing with the mask. Anything but covering of the respiratory system that spreads the virus. Right. All right. And let's end it with Soka's comment here. It says he's an awesome man. Thank you so much, Dr. Salimi. We'll take that as the final comment of the, of the evening. Kevin, back to you. All right. Well, I do have um, this want to end on the myths that you sent me. There are six of them. Myth number one, you can't predict what the long-term side effects will be. Oh, yeah. This is one that I hear all the time. COVID-19 is so new. So how do you know what the long-term uh, side effects of the vaccine could be. What, what if I'm taking the vaccine now and in five years I'm going to develop cancer? And that's a really legitimate concern and it's a really excellent question. So what we know about just the history of any vaccine is when you tend to have side effects, those side effects manifest themselves immediately like anaphylaxis, you know, why you wait 15 to 20 minutes after getting uh, your vaccine shot, or they develop within a six week, uh, a six week period. So they almost universally tend to happen within a short time range. And that's why with the clinical trials for the vaccines, they made it so that you had to follow every participant for at least two months. And of course, now we followed them for a much longer period of time. So the likelihood that if you don't experience anything in the first two months or so, that something long-term will happen after that, it's just, again, in the history of vaccines, it's exceedingly, exceedingly low, remember. 7 billion doses of the vaccine administered worldwide. In the United States, nearly 200 million people have been fully vaccinated and we've been monitoring side effects. I've talked about some of the rare ones, the anaphylaxis, the heart inflammation, the blood clots. Outside of that, side effects are incredibly rare. So again, I wanna be real, like the risk is not zero, but it is very small and the benefits far outweigh those risks. Great question though. Next myth, researchers rushed the development of the COVID-19 vaccine, so its effectiveness and safety cannot be trusted. The messenger RNA technology used to make COVID vaccine is brand new. Yeah, so again, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. That mRNA technology is not something that is brand new. It's been worked on for decades. We're just getting the opportunity to showcase what it can do during a pandemic. And again, since I've already talked about it, I'll just kind of summarize what made this different why it takes years and years, if not a decade, to develop a vaccine typically, why we were able to produce such a safe and effective vaccine now is collaboration from the best and brightest scientists from all over the world, a massive infusion of money and other resources, cutting all of the red tape between the steps between the vaccine. But again, what was not sacrificed are the randomized clinical trials that needed to happen to demonstrate a very high bar for safety and a very high bar for efficacy. And all of those things were done. And again, to me, um, this is like when we put a man on the moon, like it, it's just, it's amazing how rapidly it happened and how, I mean, if I were to try and quantify, I'm sure other people have done this, to quantify the number of lives that the vaccines have already saved uh, around the world, let alone even in my community. I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, the population in Tampa, where I live, is about 400,000. So I think about like six times higher than the Cayman Islands. And just in Tampa alone, it's probably almost certainly say my parents are near 80 years of age. 
Um, my dad has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. If they were to get infected with this virus, they have a high likelihood of something really bad happening to them. And I'm very confident that the vaccine has done an incredible job to protect people like my parents. So it, it's an incredible victory. The next myth is if I already had COVID, I don't need a vaccine. Yeah, again, we, we've already kind of addressed this one as well. Um, if you've had COVID before, you are likely to have developed some sort of an immune response. It could be a minor immune response. It could be a pretty pronounced one. But again, to be succinct, I know we're well over time. Um, even for people who have gotten infected already, even if they've developed an immune response that is pretty substantial, those people benefit from getting an additional dose of, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine. Their likelihood of getting reinfected is cut in half compared to people who have been exposed to the virus but did not get an additional dose of the vaccine. The next myth is the COVID vaccine can change your DNA. Yeah, so again, and, and this is one I totally understand. It's mRNA technology. mRNA is involved in this process where DNA is converted to mRNA, which stands for messenger RNA. Messenger RNA basically sends some signals to allow us to build all of the proteins that formulate everything in our body, it develops our skin, the enzymes that digest our food, everything, right? So we hear mRNA, we think genetic material. When you're injected with the vaccine, the mRNA message that is delivered into your cells doesn't get anywhere near the nucleus of the cell. The nucleus is where your DNA is. And so it doesn't integrate into the DNA. And in fact, once the mRNA does its thing, it puts up that most wanted poster, it degrades. And in fact, you may have heard Pfizer, you have to keep these vaccines in ultra cold freezers Otherwise, the mRNA is going to degrade on its own. So it's not something that's hanging around. It's certainly not something that gets anywhere near our DNA. And the last myth is it's going to give you COVID, the vaccine that is. Yeah, I totally understand that, you know, because some vaccines are developed what are called live attenuated vaccines. It use a very, very weakened form of the virus that really can't cause disease, but it uses parts of the virus. Well, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, this mRNA technology, again, it has nothing to do with the virus. It's helping your body to assemble something that looks like a part of the virus so that if it sees the actual virus, it can defend itself better. When you get that vaccine dose, there is zero virus that is being injected into your body. So there's no way that it can give you COVID-19. Thank you so very much, Dr. Salemi. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to the people here in the Cayman Islands. Um, really, really, um, you know, such it was packed with such great information. And, and so many people are, are commenting and, and messaging us on WhatsApp. And on, on Facebook, obviously, you could see some of the comments that were pop, uh, that were popping up. Everyone really appreciates you for, for taking the time to, to share your where you're smart in. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. And, and, and Kevin, Sandy, like, I, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, the questions were beyond outstanding. Um, I, and, you know, they're questions that I've heard a lot of times. I understand, again, excellent questions. I appreciate the respect that I've received from everybody. I'm delighted to do it, and I'm happy to do it again if it would be worthwhile. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to be in touch. Probably will bring you back in the not-so-distant yes. future. Um, but Sandy and I are going to go ahead and let you go. We're going to thank have you. a little chat with our audience before we close off the show. But again, thank you and hope you have a good night. Hope we didn't wake your little one.
No, not at all. I, I think even though I'm a very loud person, I think he's still sound asleep. So bless everybody. Stay uh, Thank safe, you happy, so and much. healthy. All right. Take care.